It's the Literary License Podcast, Kings of Horror episodes, reading and digesting books from the masters of modern horror, and viewing the films. Your co-hosts tonight are Vicky Ray, Leandro Ghazi, Craig Johnson, David Grant, and Keith Shaw, giving you a word by word, scene by scene, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between, and everything in between. Welcome to Literary License Podcast and their Books the Screens Kings of Horror episodes. We'll be discussing Let the Right One In by Jean Azid Lidsquist. I'm sure I mispronounced that. And the Swedish film um, from 2008. And before we get started, let's find out who's with us. We got Matthew Brockmeyer with us. Hello, Matthew. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Hey. And we got C. Derek Miller with us. Hello, Chad. Hey, guys. Nice to see you again. And we got Craig Johnson. Hello, Craig. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and David Grant. Hello, David. Hello there. And Leandro Gazi. Hello, Leandro. Hello, Keith. Uh, hello, everyone. How are you? And I'm your host, Keith Sago. And before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to. And we'll start off with you, Chad. What have you been up to since last time we spoke to you, which I think was a week ago? or maybe Yeah, a week ago, two weeks ago. Uh, two weeks ago. Definitely two weeks ago. Writer's okay. block. Nothing but. Uh, this this whole uh, this whole ins- well this whole war war we're gonna call it what it is war in Ukraine has just uh, man it's just blocked me out uh, I'm I'm a I'm a U.S. Army veteran my son is currently serving and I can't stop watching the news it's on twenty four seven in my house and I just I I feel absolutely horrible for what's going on you know if my country. Uh, being the United States doesn't want to be the humanitarians that were all portrayed in the movies and go help out, then, you know, maybe I should go pick up arms and go help out myself. Do my part for Ukraine. My personal thoughts. Um, on the, but there's a news story on BBC yesterday that was kind of embarrassing. That um, There is a story, I think, that basically there's these, Ukrainian soldiers on an island and the Russian ship came through and they said go F go fuck yourself and they killed them. Wow. But I heard uh, this live. People are alive now and they were on BBC News and the guy they looked really embarrassing because it never happened. And the guy from that oh, wow. Yeah, you gotta you gotta wonder how much of it's propaganda, but you know, this yeah. is it is it is what it is. You know, I don't have any views on on it at all but when i saw that and it's just that the, the bbc reporter was like 
was like trying trying to keep it together and they're like oh well we're really sorry that we reported that and he goes why did you report it where did you get your stories from like, yeah. <laughs> people were like where are you getting your stories from you can't sit there and say that we're dead we're living with our families we're not in prison camp we're not dead that didn't happen and it's like it went, it went i mean next thing you know it just got cut and it's cut it out of this like, poof. so yeah it was kind of like oh but it was funny watching that so <laughs> so <started> laughing <laughs> Nothing better than a reporter trying to get out of a mess and they put themselves in. So, <laughs> Sorry, I, did, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to take the show all political there for a second. I just oh, uh, no. a, a rant kind of like jumped onto the tip of my tongue and took over. Well, it's all over everything now. So I mean, yeah, yeah it's understandable. It's part of everyone's life at the moment. So, but um, what else have you been up to besides watching the news? <laughs> Well, I'm working on the sequel to the Splatter Western Starving Zoe. This one's called Tracking Zoe. Uh, it actually has ties to the uh, the Texas uh, fight for independence, which I'm, I'm sure is all <laughs> mistold in history books as well. Um, that's it. Uh, actually working with my wife for once as a co-author. We're going to we're going to see what she brings to the table. She's she's way nastier of a writer than I am. So uh, people give me hell for starving Zoe. I just want them all to know that she was the editor. <laughs> she would bring it back to me every night and go, hey, you need to make this nastier. You need to describe this more. We need to know what it feels like, what it sounds like, what it smells like. Okay. <laughs> it's a bit like Dick Francis and his wife yeah, who used yeah, to co-write yeah. together when they were doing their novels and stuff. Uh, but it's, it's actually nice. It's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to. What was that? I said Dick Francis. As it, well, didn't he go to prison? Was it him? Oh no, it was Je- no, that's Jeffrey Archer. Never mind. Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Francis. I think he was a uh, he was writing a lot about horses and stuff, horse yeah, racing. Yeah. And, and yeah. Stuff. yeah. <laughs> A lot of dressage. <laughs> <laughs> and what about yourself, Matthew? What are you even up to? All the usual reading, writing, um, checking out films. Let's see, uh, some <clears throat> things that I watched. Uh, that Inventing Anna was pretty good. Did you see that? Mm. No, I haven't seen that. It's about, uh, you may have heard of her. She's a, she was, she said that she was a German heiress and went to New York City and she was almost got a bank loan for like uh, uh, $200 million or something insane like that to start this art. But she was just like a Russian fake. She faked it all. Uh-huh. She she took like so many of these millionaires money, which is it's it kind of a, I mean, she's a thief. So, you know, but some of these people like deserve to get ripped off the way she was. It was funny. <laughs> yeah. Kind of reminds me of that story about um, they made a they made a play and they made a movie called, um, called Six Degrees Separation. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. see where um, this kid came in and said he was Sidney Poitier's son. And he, like, like, <laughs> only the rich and elite people were like taking him in and giving him money and stuff like this. And he was just like he was just like a hooker, basically. He was just a man. Right. <laughs> he gave him the old speech about um, Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the <laughs> Rye. He's like he. he <laughs> Well, seeing what great, happened, in the movie, great play. That's probably, probably a good escape if that if that was if, if we were telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'll, I'll be doing well, movie reviews now for a movie web. I don't know some website that I'm. They just hired me to do reviews. That's something. Yeah. 
really reviews this car. I mean, I I mean, I do a lot of book reviews and stuff like this. So I get a lot of stuff sent to me now. I quite like it. It's like you know, you get sent to them, put your little thing out there. Yeah, I used to do book reviews for Culture Vultures a while back. I still get books in the mail, and it's been like years since I wrote any reviews for them. I know they just send them to my Kindle now, so it's just like this gets full sort of thing. So nice. And what about yourself, Leandro? What have you been up to? It's been a month. Uh, yeah, I've been well working a lot, um, reading, watching movies, not much more than that. <laughs> Face mask off, no more lockdown. So getting back to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, last week was uh, holiday at work, but I have to work three days. So the other two, I was a bit chilling and yeah. But not doing like. And what about yourself, Craig? What have you been up to? Um, I've been watching. Um, I watched. I managed to watch last night in Soho. Oh yeah, uh, which was a it was a brilliant movie. Just it was so so beautifully made. Um, just really lovely to see like nineteen sixties and yeah, um, how they <laughs> so, had the style of that that time. They they just captured it perfectly. And I've been watching. Um, I've been watching Doctor Who on the Forces TV on digital TV. I've been watching. I think I watched The City of Death written by Douglas Adams so it was brilliant with Tom Baker uh such a classic and um I've been uh, I've updated my one of my galleries I've, I've updated the degree art gallery the links in my links are in um if you go to the Craigs World link in the newsletter um I've updated some artworks on there and um yeah just that and, and battling um uh tube strikes this week in london yeah. which is a bit of a nightmare but it's nothing if you compare what's happening in ukraine yeah. <laughs> you know i haven't got much to complain about <laughs> you yeah. know yeah no we're living in paradise yeah. what about yourself david what have you been up to either yeah just um well just continuing sort of playing and uh last night i went down to a little uh session down in camden with uh, some friends and that was great you know just uh got over some covers and I'm sort of uh, finally getting some of the songs uh, put together now, just on Garage Band, and uh, very proud of Craig going boxing. He's a uh, boxer now, you know. <laughs> I have to watch myself. <laughs> you might just swift give us a swift left. <laughs> but uh, no, great. And also, um, just uh, saying what. To- well, oh yeah, did yeah. some more doing the sort of open night nights, um, just playing songs like with some friends and. Uh, I saw the uh, Nightmare Alley that uh, Mafia was going on about. I thought it was amazing, you know. It just and you've got to go and see it in the cinema, um, even though it is in colour. Like you know, the colours are even sort of like sinister, you know. Just a great movie and Licorice Pizza and Moonfall. That was really cool. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And my front, well, we've been nominated for four Rondo Awards, a documentary that we helped out on called Dark Shadows and Beyond: The Story of Jonathan Frick. And then um, Best Podcast, we've been nominated. And we've been nominated for Best Interview with our Don Briscoe tribute. We got, um, that's, that, I'm, that's quite special one, actually, because Don Briscoe's family since he died. Um, and even, um, he suffered basically manic depression and stuff like that. So after Dark Shadows, he, had, he went back home and kind of went into a life of um, solitude and and had his family I take care of him so they had they had refused to speak to the press so they actually spoke to us so we've been nominated for that interview and then yeah I got nominated for best horror host so we'll see how that goes um and then um and then I've been 
invited to be part of the Fellowship of the Royal Society of Arts here in the UK under the Queen Elizabeth. So, so we'll see how that goes. So, <laughs> I want to you have to. I um, you become a member. Um, I don't. I mean, frankly speaking, I'm not sure why they nominated me, considering I, unless the Queen's sitting at home and watching horror films, I'm not quite <laughs> sure. <laughs> it, is, it is an honor. Um, I, get a, I get a title. I guess that's something as well. An American getting a title, when most Americans have to pay for them. But, um, but um, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, I, I'm, you know, it's, it's an honor. It's quite nice they thought of that. But outside of that, um, um, so we're. Do we have know, to call you sir or not yet? <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably, probably something probably more fitting, really. But, um, but yeah, and outside of that, um, you know, we urge all our people to vote and stuff like that. And, that, um, and all you have to do is, you know, go onto our Facebook page or to our website and just click, click on the banner above and it'll teach you how to put you in the right direction if you want to vote. And outside of that, um, I have to say I watched this Netflix series that loved i mean there's only like five episodes called worst roommate ever that was fantastic i mean i'm you know it's a true story kind of thing about the best one was the old woman who basically was like only like 40 and she dressed herself as an old woman so that people would um trust her and then she just murdered people for the doll checks <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> i watched that too it's a good show yeah i would made with most of the cases each episode yeah. is a different case It's, ah, okay. Because I think yeah. I watched one that was Amanda said he was a lawyer and then uh, he was kind of renting a, a, a room and then he, then he didn't want to go from the house and then he was saying that it was now his house. I was, yeah. That was one of them, yeah. Water. <laughs> Apparently that is a thing. I don't, I, I don't know if it's a thing anymore. I know in this country squatting used to be a thing, but I think it's outlawed here now. Yeah, it's outlawed now, yeah. But I remember um, a friend of mine owned the house. Um, they went away for three months on holiday because he had to, he had to, well, he had to work in a foreign country. So the family moved over there for three months. And when they got back, they had squatters in, and they, it took them two and a half years to get these squatters out. So they couldn't even live in their own house. So, I mean, I, I see, I see both sides. I mean, if something's vacant and it's standing empty and if maybe it's slightly derelict or something, maybe, but if no one's owning it, maybe, you know, I can understand it, but if you, You know, but they were actually going to like rich people's houses and just squatting their way. Like you go away, on, you can go away on holiday, like for a weekend, and the as squatters got in, you can't. All they have to do is go and change the locks, and you're you're screwed. You can't get rid True. of them. That is a great idea. I'm going to stop paying my mortgage today and start that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the movie My Beautiful Laundrette, where yeah, they yeah, get yeah. the bailiffs in just yeah, to. Yeah. Get exactly. the squatters out, and then yeah. he says, "I'm going to change the locks tomorrow." The <laughs> <laughs> major is a law that actually that actually um, promotes promotes it and protects them. That's what the funny thing about it is. Like, it's like who came up with that law, sort of thing. But yeah, outside of that, I've just been watching odds and ends and stuff like that. So that's pretty much it for me. Well, that will lead us to Let the Right One In, which is a Swedish 2004 vampire novel by Swedish writer John 
as did Lindquist. The story is in the relationship between a 12-year-old boy, Oscar, and centuries-old vampire child, Eli. It takes place in Blackenburg, a working-class suburb of Stockholm, in the early 1980s. The book focuses on the dark side of humanity, dealing with thematically heavy issues such as existential anxiety, social isolation, fatherlessness, divorce, alcoholism, social bullying, pedophilia, gentle mutilation, self-mutilation, and murder. The book was a bestseller in the author's home country of Sweden and it was translated into seven languages across the world, including English. A Spanish-language film, Let the Right One In, directed by Thomas Alfredson, which we'll be discussing later, was released in 2008. And the English-language film adaption, based on the Lindquist screenplay titled Let Me In, directed by Matt Reeves, was released in 2010. An English-language stage adaption premiered in 2013 here in the UK. American network TNT ordered a pilot episode for a television series based on the novel to premiere in 2017. However, TNT ultimately passed on the series. In 2021, Showtime ordered a pilot, later given a series order, and will be reduced by Tomorrow Studios and will be out in 2022. So what we're going to do is cut to the synopsis of the book, Let the Right One In, and we'll be right back. The synopsis for Let the Right One In by Swedish writer John Javid Lindquist. In 1981, Blackbird Stockholm, Oscar is a 12-year-old boy who lives with his mother, who is loving and with whom he initially seems to have a close connection. His father, whom Oscar visits occasionally, is an alcoholic living in the countryside. Because the boy is the victim of a merciless bullying, Oscar has gained morbid interests which include crime and forensics and he keeps his scrapbook filled with newspaper articles about murders. One day he befriends Eli, a girl about the same age, who just moved in next door. She lives with an older man named Hyken, a former teacher who was fired when caught in possession of child pornography. She's revealed to be a vampire who is turned as a child and is therefore stuck forever in a young body and mind. Oscar and Eli develop a close relationship and she helps him fight back against his tormentors. Throughout the book, the relationship gradually becomes closer and they reveal more of themselves, including fragments of Eli's human life. Among the details revealed is that Eli is a boy named Elias who was castrated when she was turned into a vampire over 200 years ago. However, she dresses in female clothing and received by outsiders as a young girl. Hyken serves Eli, whom he loves, by procuring blood from the living, fighting against his conscience and choosing victims whom he can physically trap, but who are not too young. Eli gives him money for doing this. Hyken offers to go out one last time under the condition that he spends the night with Eli after she gets the blood, but with the caveat that he may only touch Eli. Hyken's last attempt to get blood fails and he's caught. Just before capture, however, he initially disfigures himself with acid so that the police will not be able to trace Eli through him. When Eli finds him in the hospital, Hyken offers his blood and is drunk dry while sitting on the window ledge, but a guard interrupts them and Eli fails to kill him. 
that he won't also end up becoming a vampire, Hiking throws himself out the window to the ground below. Despite this, he reanimates as a mindless vampire, driven only by his desire for Eli. Hiking then relentlessly pursues Eli, managing to trap her in a basement before trying to rape her, but she fights him off and escapes. Later, the wounded Hiking is destroyed by Tommy, who actually gets locked in the basement with him. Meanwhile, Blackenberg, local alcoholic Lack, suspects a child is responsible for the murder of his best friend, Jacques, whom Eli has killed for blood. Later, Locke witnesses Eli attack on his sometime girlfriend, Virginia. She attempts to drink her blood, but is fought off by Locke. Virginia survives, but starts turning into a vampire. She does not realize her infection until she tries to prolong her life by drinking her own blood and finds that exposure to sun causes boils on her skin. Upon being hospitalized, Virginia realizes that she has turned into and kills herself in her bed by deliberately exposing herself by daylight. Lack, while attempting to avenge Virginia, is thwarted by Oscar and Eli. Oscar eventually fights back and injures his tormentor, Johnny, for which the boy's older brother, Jimmy, hunts down and attempts to hurt Oscar in, re in retaliation. Oscar eventually fights back and injures his tormentor, Johnny, for which the boy's older brother, Jimmy, hunts down and attempts to hurt Oscar in retaliation. Oscar further incurs their wrath when he sets fire to their desk, destroying a treasure photo album belonging to their father. They corner Oscar at night at the local swimming pool and attempt to drown him. However, Eli rescues Oscar and he decapitates the two brothers. Together they flee the city with Eli's money and possessions. And that is the synopsis of Let the Right One In by Swedish writer John Javid Lindqvist. Welcome back to the Literary License Podcast, and we're discussing Let the Right One in the novels. And starting with you, Matthew, what are your thoughts of Let the Right One in the book? Oh, it's, it's a longtime fan, one of my favorite books of all time. I think it's like one of the greatest vampire books ever written. Uh, it's so deep, the things it looks at, bullying, um, gender issues. The, the gender issues, I think, are, are very ahead of its time. Um, I mean, she... she uh, she changes pronouns halfway through the book. I don't, you know, I, I don't remember in the, I mean, I get, I know it was an issue, but not like it is today with uh, pronouns or such a huge thing today. And they really took it on and tackled it back then. It was almost 20 years ago. The book came out and uh, loneliness and um, just so much going on in there. It, you know, it, it, it's, it's a heart pulls at your heartstrings Uh the book is so complicated and long. So many, I, I counted over 20 points of view and you don't really notice it though, because they are all in service to the story. So you can see the storyline moving along. But if you, if you really take a look at that book, there's this like, like when um, she's up on the roof of the hospital and it's like a cab pulls up and suddenly you're in the perspective of the cab driver for a minute. 
you know, there's just so many points of view in that book. And, um, but it's a fabulous, great book. One of my favorites. And what about yourself, Craig? What are your thoughts? Um, I, it was a really nice book. Um, it was very graphic. Um, probably more, I found the book more graphic than the movie. Um, but, um, I like what Matthew said about the, like the, um, the socio um, themes and stuff. Yeah, it's ahead of its um, time. It was sure. really nice. It was nice to learn about Oscar and his uh, what he was going through when he was at the school and things. Because we've all been there. When everyone's experienced bullying at some stage in their life sort of thing, and we can all relate to it. Um, and um, I, ju- I thought it was uh, the, the sense of, like, the cold sense... I, I could feel that come through in the novel as well, um, but yeah, I, it was a it was a good, enjoyable book, and um, it, it was really. Uh, I think the book I, I could I, I could tell I was more in the nineteen eighties when I was reading the book more so than the film as well because the film I felt it was more like nineties, but uh, that, I think it's just mm. because it's um, it was a Swedish um, film, so it was a bit different from from say like a like a a typical eighties movie sort of thing. And, and um, I think it's, it's a really important book as well, because it shows that, um, you know, the girl, even though the girl was, uh, she was vulnerable. You, you could sense like a sense of vulnerability about her sort of thing that came through. Um, and I just really, I sort of was, um, I really felt for the characters and it was really good character building as well. Um, yeah, really good. What are your thoughts? Yes, yeah, I think I agree with a lot of points. Craig just come up with there, like you know. But uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's I've, I've lived in Sweden, you know, and Denmark. It's really it is a cool place. It's not like Newcastle where it seems to get inside your bones. It's just like it's <laughs> it's like more like a sort of like inside your head, you know. It's really bizarre um, feeling, but it's also that big sky thing that you get in America, you know, when you can see all the stars at once, almost like you know, but. I think uh, the the little girl, yeah, she was very, um, yeah, the bullying thing and the little boy, it's just really sad, you know, because I think we've all gone through that, like in, in certain ways, like, you know, um, some people's psychological bullying or whatever, like, or physical bullying, you it, know. It, it kind of freaked me out in the book as well about there was like that sense of paedophilia, yeah. uh, sort of that well, <laughs> thin line. <laughs> yeah. it, it was more, went into more detail about what he was going to do to the boys and in the, you know, and, and to target the, the, the kids in the, the the locker room scenes um it was more it was more in detail in the book than what was shown in the film uh i was kind of thankful for that actually in the movie it was sort of less shown well you can pan it more out in a book yeah it was quite it was quite unnerving i think no that's fine that's great just what craig was saying i totally agree you know is um i think but as i say like in a book you you pan it out you can really fill the character out i mean a short story is like you can only just do like a paper thin version of the person or the, the protagonist or whatever. But um, when in a novel, like you can really expand on that. You can really get right into the nuts and bolts of it, you know, mm. fantastic. Whereas in a movie, like you've got a certain, certain amount of time to sort of yeah. say what you have to say or even, show what you have to show. <laughs> even that bit where the guy in the first scenes where he's hanging him up, he gasses him and he hangs him upside down, eye, yeah. cuts his throat and then tries to fill up a, a, a funnel. That was really like detailed in the book. Whereas in the movie, it was more, 
yeah, just hit it left you leather. guessing, thinking, yeah. like, why the hell has he hung someone upside down? But that was in the in the book. It explains it because you want to drain someone out completely, sort of thing. Oh, <laughs> it's like bled out. Yeah. Wow. What about yourself, Leandro? What are your thoughts? Um, well, it was really interesting. You know, like it's the first book that I read that were um, vampires and bullying appear in the same story. I have read other books from two from Stephen King where bullying appear, but well, one is it, the other one is um, the body. I haven't read so many books where bullying appear like so like presence and in detail like um, in this one. Uh, yeah, interesting, bit long um, to read, but yeah, I enjoyed. What are your thoughts? You know this. This book, actually, uh, I was one of those people, typical American, sorry, apologizing in advance. I was one of those people that I saw the American film first and then saw the Swedish film and then read the book. Um, and, and the book is by far, just in case anyone is wondering, the, more, <laughs> the, the, best, the best story out of all three of those options. It, it made me realize that uh, I, I, I was sympathizing with, with Oscar, the main character, a lot but and i had i had forgotten and i'm i'm not quite sure if if this is just memories that have been repressed or or not uh you know keith you're 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 uh you're an expert in all of this perhaps you could analyze my brain someday but uh, <laughs> uh i i was bullied quite a lot in uh like like junior high uh and and it's always seemed to be in in those those vulnerable classes those those pe classes where you're you're wearing you know we're talking the 80s here baby you know i was wearing the shorty shorts and the tall socks you know it's the guys in the locker room always giving you hell when when you're at your most vulnerable and i'd forgotten about a lot of that when i was reading this book though it it all kind of came back and i'm like i'm like oh my god man i was i was the victim of some some really similar shit and uh i had to like stop reading and just think about it for a long time and uh the author did a great job of just i mean it it makes me wonder what they experienced when they were in school you know just did you go through this as well is is this you know your kind of coming out story your your story of explaining what all happened to you through these characters and uh i i think maybe it it might have been i'd be interested to uh to hear from his lips what he went through there's not much on him out there i've tried you know his father drowned and there's a lot of water references in all of his works like in in let the right one in there's tons of then they drag him out in the book they drag him out they're gonna drown him in the ice they do it differently in the movie i didn't really like but there's all this water stuff constantly i don't know if you noticed that but it's because his father drowned but there's not much on him is he? I I try to look up. Is he gay? Is he or is he out of the closet? Like it, I couldn't find anything. <laughs> he, he's he's got that Swedish um um bio that basically is like you know whether you're Abba or the maker of Volvo or any or even you know Britt Eklund, they always tend to keep their private life very very private. They don't know yeah. anything about them, sort of thing. Um, but. I mean, from when I was able, I mean, he used to be a stand-up comic, 
Right. Um, I know that he, you know, and he decided to write a book, which this was his first one. Um, well, he wrote a couple of short stories before this one. Um, and and in the interviews that you see with him, all he talks, he's a man of very few words. He's a bit, he's a bit like a, to me, he's like the Swedish horror writer version of John Irving. That's what he kind of reminds me of, where John Irving doesn't give too much away, but there's, there's enough of him in, there's enough of John Irving in his works that you can pretty much start mapping out what his background story is. Right, right. And, you know, from all the books that I've read about Freilinghurst, and I've read every single one of them, there's always isolation. He's always very, the characters are always very much on their own. And at first, when I first read the left the right one in, I thought maybe this was a Swedish thing because a lot of Swedish movies and books and um, are normally about you know being on your own. I mean, the, you know the the girl with the dragon tattoo. You know, that's all about isolation. And you know, and if you look at you know the works of Igmar Bergman about isolation again. So yeah, at first, first, I thought that maybe you know this is just a regular thing in you know. <laughs> But when it comes to him, there seems to be a little bit more personality in the isolation. So with here, we got Oscar's isolation. And um, and we also have the beginning of the Latchkey Kid coming on here as well. So obviously that was going on in Sweden as, as it was going around the rest of the world in the 80s. So Oscar's a Latchkey Kid. So we got the isolation of I, Oscar here. And Little Star, we have the isolation of the main character there at the harbor. And even I Am the Tiger, there's the isolation of people within families and they're still isolated within their own family. So I would say that's probably part of him. And I also found that there's no lasting relationships in any of his mood and any of his books either. There's no happy marriages. There's no, um, well, there's let, let the dream. And if they do date, they kind of date out of necessity, not out of emotion. Well, then let the old, (laughs) let the old dreams die. Oh, Oh. which is a, a love story and a sequel to let the right one in. And it, it is all super hope, which I didn't like it because of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's super hopeful. You read it, right? Keith? It's mm-hmm. about, it's about a, a married couple yeah. who are just totally devoted to each other and totally love each other. And they have the most perfect marriage and they're just so happy. And they met because the, the wife was the police officer involved in the case. And he was the conductor on the train at the very end. Huh. And okay. and um, when they get terminal cancer, they decide to try to go find them so that they can become vampires together. Because apparently Ellie and Oscar are still happily being vampires in Spain to this day. <laughs> but, uh, I didn't like it. I was like, for one, you didn't get to, to see Oscar and Ellie. You just hear about these rumors. Number two, with too damn fucking happy. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't know. Well, I just read um, I Am the Tiger, and it does reference the going-ons in Brackenburg in the 1980s, and they're referring to the Oscar story. And basically, when they left, well, you know, and when they've been looking for Oscar, they, um, they're having a bat. The, the detective, the guy who is writing about what, what happened there, he's like a famous... Um, reporter become a famous crime reporter dealing with underground crimes and he said that when they were looking for the case of what supposedly happened that basically what they came up with was nothing but destitute and isolation within an unhappy compound so he decided not to write about it 
And he talked about the Oscar story when they when they were able to figure out make where he may have went. And that's the reason why they want to go on because the newspaper didn't want to print anything about where they may be because it was too depressing. <laughs> so that that so that totally goes against what his that short story that he put in there. But as you were saying, I mean, that book did you know um, an old dream does kind of it kind of goes against the grain of what he's writing. It's almost like he's like. I've been told to write something slightly different with something a bit more hopeful and came out right. with the natural right. plan. So I do understand what you're saying in that book, that book you just mentioned. It was in first person too. It was like a, reminded me of Edgar Allan Poe, like uh, <laughs> looking back. I also found because it's a bunch of short stories, I also think that it was a way for him to like experiment in different things in different ways and see what he could do. I mean, I know he does, you know, after that he does revert back to his, regular style of writing and stuff like this. The story about the um, the lady who searches bags, the, she's a border patrol. They made that into a movie, I think, right? Or is it a series? I, I heard it's yeah. really good. So, I mean, I mean, even, um, I mean, even the harbor, I mean, you know, that, that also includes a lot of water and that, that's probably more directed, you know, about his father's death and stuff like this and the drowning <laughs> and sort of thing. So, yeah, so when it comes to the author, from what you're saying, I would sit there and say that if you want to know about him, I think you have to read his body of work, and I think that that's how you're going to be able to scope out much about him. But right. said before, I don't, think he's, I don't think he has children or, or married, or if he is in a relationship, I don't think anyone knows anything about it. If he is a homosexual, I mean, in Sweden, I mean, that's, you know, that's not a big deal, especially in Europe. I mean, it's, so I'm not sure... If he is, would he, would he would need to hide that or anything like that? But said before, or maybe he just doesn't believe in relationships. Maybe he's just yeah. <laughs> right. He just, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Pays for them for the yeah. other memory. Or maybe he's Watch just a he, he's just a typical writer, and he gets in a I'm new one every five years. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> or is that just an American thing? I don't. I don't know. That's. But yeah, I mean. I mean, I said before, I mean, I've looked up, into, I mean, he's one of these people I'm so enthralled with. I mean, I'm a huge fan of his. Once I read, let the right one in, it's like, you know, every time a book comes out, I mean, he's, you know, basically I get a thing from Amazon, this book's coming out. And lately for the last three books, they actually, they actually get sent to me, his publisher actually sends it to me to review. So I'm actually even luckier, but there for a while, it's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just hooked on his writing style and the way he writes and, his characters are so interesting and everything's just so intricate. And even the, the smallest minute characters that really don't meet anything like the drunk in let the right one in his character is not, he's not really mandatory to plot, but he's so well drawn out within, you know, the five paragraphs that's written about him that you know, everything about him. Yeah. Like yeah. I was saying that he's so many different points of view and he'll, like I said, that cab driver, he does a summary of him. He starts talking about the cab driver. What is like, and you start to get to know this guy for a second, just so that he can see Ely fall off the building. And then that guy, you never come back to him, never see him again, but he totally fleshes him out. You feel like, you know, him. he's, he's an amazing writer. And even with the deal with, um, he also captures the political climate that's going on there and, and uh, on social economic um, platform as well. Knowing that basically in Sweden in the 80s, they were going through, like the rest of the world, going Europe went through, was going through like a really bad recession at that time. The 70s, you know, we may have had a great, great music and stuff like this, but even in America, I mean, but it wasn't an easy time to live economically. 
Right. And then you had like um, Sweden, you know, basically building these homes, these little box, you know, box rooms, box houses, basically like boxes on top of boxes sort of thing for lower incomes and struggling families. And I love the way that he captured that and how, how the, and he, he mentioned this in the new one as well. I'm the tiger. I'm not going to give too much of that away because that's coming out. And I think everyone should read it, but he does mention that how the city officials are so out of it when it comes to like planning that basically they build these, you know, house plants. And then they put like little things in the middle for people to congregate, knowing that these people, no one ever congregates in these areas, like the playground area. No one congregates there because these people are just too depressed to even want to see each other. And I love how he expresses that within his books and stuff like this. And he doesn't do it like in a way that he's hammering you over the head about anything. He's not, he's not on a, he's not doing a political or social economical lesson or forthright tale about that that's just part of the tale and this is part of the characters and when it's part of the characters this also becomes this is the reason why they are who they are sort of thing and i like that you know he's not looking to answer he's not saying that the world needs to change to be a better place this is that these are these characters and this is what it is it's the world he grew up in a in blackbird it's a real place it's not a fictional place yeah (laughs) Well, a lot of his stories take place around there, actually. I think the only one that doesn't take place there is the harbor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I Am the Tiger takes place there. Um, Handling the Undead takes place there. Is that the Swedish dairy? Yes. <laughs> it's not fictional. <laughs> it's a real place. Now, another thing I like about Lindquist's work is that he keeps things like the werewolf in Little Star, you know, um, zombies and unhandling the dead and the vampire here and i love the way that he gives something that can be old and tired and give it a whole new look and spin on it mm-hmm. i mean um yeah. you know the the look of the the vampire uh, you know in in this instance sort of thing you know he didn't do the Anne rice one or the Bram stoker one or or any kind of you know way of doing you know any any kind of variation of that he came up with his own and he does that with everything he does. And I have to give him credit for that because I think that's really hard because I find that there are a lot of authors out there who kind of like take it and it's like take stuff that's already lore and just turn make the lore their own where he just makes an all new kind of folklore. with his well, like, uh, Nos- like Nosferatu, you know, and Moro, you know, I mean, they wouldn't, uh, the estate of Bram Stoker wouldn't allow him to do the, the original story. So he, he just had to adapt his own thing, you know. Um, but that's, but you know, you talk about Sweden, yeah. It's funny, I, I lived in Sweden because we worked there, you know, and um, they do have these little, they're almost like Lego boxes, you know, and it's like there's a, a sort of hole in the middle, like you said, you know, and it's supposed to congregate, there's benches there and they have the flag up, and but nobody goes down, you know, it's nobody wants to, you know, even in the summer when it's nice, like nobody wants to congregate, you know, so they're just the same as, uh, you know, all of the human beings on the planet, they just want to keep their own little thing going, you know, nobody really wants to sort of like uh, mix. Well, I imagine that in those countries, you know, that um, that is cold, colder, yeah. like more than other places. Like people tend to stay inside of me, be more reserved, right? And yeah. I don't know if you, once I heard that apparently, I think it's, I don't know if it's Sweden, I think it's one has the highest ranking of people killing, uh, committing suicide on Sundays. Wow. Okay. Because of depression, even though it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world, so you were thinking, okay, people are having everything, 
but probably don't have the, the weather or the time to but use it. Yeah, yeah, and then syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sad syndrome, lack of light. That syndrome doesn't really take place too much in the <coughs> Sweden. It's more in the northern part where they get Yeah, we get, get further up, like all, maybe Lapland, yeah. Iceland. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Or yeah. top part of it. But, uh, uh, you know, Northern Lights is beautiful. You know, we did see it. It was great, you know, but uh, I don't think I would like to live somewhere like that, you know, honestly. You know, it's like living inside a ping pong ball. Everything's white. The sky's white. The ground's white. You're white. It's really weird, you know. <laughs> Even though I'm so, the sun, you know? <laughs> I'm so envious of you guys. I, I really am. Living in America, all we get is a furniture store. You know, that's all we get in Sweden. You know, yeah, yeah. IKEA. I'm so I'm so envious of you that, that you have been there and you've experienced. Move to IKEA. That's the one. <laughs> and then we can I die trying to get out. Yeah, try to try to build a chair. <laughs> It's also quite interesting from a Swedish point of writing about Sweden is that, you know, especially like in the UK and, you know, outside of Sweden, I mean, Sweden's always known as having this prototype about the way to live. They have the best socialist government. They have the best socialist way of life. And so before Lindquist, I just assumed that everyone just kind of lived the same, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> Because that's 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 the image that you get. I know that they pay high taxes. They pay anywhere between seventy-five to eighty percent of their wages goes to taxes. What? You never got into black metal, man? Yeah. <laughs> you never listened to that stuff or those guys they burn down churches and shit, man. I watched yeah. Metalocalypse. I mean, is that close enough? Oh uh, well, that uh, that was based on the, the one guy was supposed to be a Swedish de- yeah. black metal guy. Yeah, you watch um watch Till the Light Takes Us. It's a fascinating documentary about. The late 80s, early 90s in Sweden with these, you know what I'm talking about, right? They were burning down churches that were like 400 years old and they end up killing each other. And of course, wow, there's no jail sentence. The jail sentences that they are short. So, like, the one guy, he's out of prison. He's on Twitter acting like a neo Nazi asshole and stuff. Yeah. So, there's a dark side out there. They're, they're old Vikings and shit, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a dark side. I mean, um, I mean, you know, Annie, Annie Fred Langstead, um, or Frida from ABBA. I mean, there's a documentary that basically what happened is with um, Hitler during World War II went to yeah. Norway, Sweden, and decided to impregnate all the women to come up with the master race. And Sweden and Norway were on board with this, even though they were neutral. But they were on board with this. And then when the war ended, they took all those children and they put them in asylums where they stayed for the rest of their lives yeah. and until they died. And Frida was one of those ones, but her grandparents had to smuggle her over into Sweden and hide her in Sweden. And then, of course, she became who she is today, sort of thing. But you're like watching this going, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Midsummer. I mean, to be honest, I think the reason why we have Lindquist anyway today is this comes, I mean, he came off the back of. And the girl with the dragon tattoo, which became a you know phenomenon in you know book sales. You know they they took the Swedish book and they basically released it after this got after the author died. After he he wrote all three of them, he died. They released them and onto the world. And then Lindquist kind of came in behind that sort of thing, and that's why we you know have Lindquist. And I have to sit there and say that he writes everything in Swedish as we know um, his English is, I don't think he knows a lot of English because when I have seen him in interviews and stuff like that, even in English interviews, they normally have an interpreter with him. 
Okay. So whoever adapting his books into English does a fantastic job. I have to give them, I mean, I have to give them that because um, a friend of mine, Christina, she's in Sweden and, um, and she's, she says that Swedish writing is very, very staccato. Because it's the Germanic, you know, the Germanic form of and in their language and stuff like this. And there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of expressions and a lot of description. You know, they kind of say things and you read in between that. So whoever right. whoever does the, his books and puts them in English does a fantastic job because they have to put all the descriptions into it. And from and what he was sitting there saying that when they're adapting it into English. That the person who's adapting it also knows Swedish, but then he, but he has to know exactly how they're adapting it every step of the way. So they have a really good partnership. So that his adaptions are always done by the same person. Great. That's oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. It's like a uh, Lars von Trier, you know. His English is very good. Like you know, and he, I think he lived in England for a bit, you know. And but um, you know, he's he's a big exponent of like trying to like bipolarism, depression. But not always, like, because, I mean, the Dogville was interesting. But I remember watching, uh, I think it was, uh, sorry, in the Danish, it was called Festen. It's a family family party, you know, and how all the dark secrets come out when everyone gets drunk, you know. But, um, yeah, I don't know why. It just seems to be, like, prevalent. And, and in Newcastle, you know, funny enough, where I'm from, you know, there's always, like, a dark, there's a, there's a real darkness there and bullying and all the other sort of stuff that we're talking about now, you know. Strange how it's... Um, seems like you would think as you go further to the top of the world, it would get lighter. You would feel more happier. <laughs> you're getting more, you know, maybe you're getting le- less oxygen <laughs> and more sort of like, <laughs> more sort of like, I don't know, something else. But uh, yeah, but no, no, it's really, yeah, kind of sad, but I really, really related bullying, to this. I think a lot of bullying, like there's bullying and there's bullying. And I think when we get to like the really rough bullying, it tends to be in more economically starved areas anyway, that True. sort of thing. You know, and I think that, you know, I would sit there and say that when you have extreme bullying, it's, it tends to be with people that it normally happens economically because no one's really happy with themselves sort of thing. And then when you got uh, a lot of going through a lot of hardship and uh, and when you're bull, when you do bully someone, you know, a bull, normally if a bullying, if you're bullying someone, it's a way to deflect what's really going on with yourself. So basically, if you point out someone else's faults, that way no one's looking at your own faults. Exactly. That's that's what it is. I mean, even the bullying in here, I mean, I know the bullying. I mean, this has to be one of the worst cases of bullying ever what's happening to Oscar in here, you know, to the point where, you know, he's wearing a, you know, a piss ring to basically because he's pissing his pants and to soak up the urine and stuff like this. And so and, and it just goes, you know, right on. But then when you get into the, the boys that are bullying, then you find out their lives are not a piece of cake either here sort of oh, thing. There's a lot of problems going on behind the scenes with these two as well sort of thing. You know, it's now, crazy. They, it's crazy that you say that because now that I think about it, um, you know, I think back to the kids that that bullied me when I was in like, you know, like elementary, junior high, that that sort of thing. Every single one of those guys that gave me a hard time when I was growing up, when <laughs> I... uh was involved in a career in law enforcement later on in life. Every single one of those guys ended up on the opposite end of the bars. Like those guys, I would always see them just getting arrested. You know, it's, it's like maybe, you know, the, the, the place where I'm from in Texas, a little town called Greenville. If you Google it, it's most known for having a sign that hangs across its main street 
that reads, Welcome to Greenville, the blackest land, the whitest people. I wish I was making that up. I'm totally not. Uh, but it's it's very, very classist, or at least it was when I was a child. And, you know, the poor kids got picked on the the upper class kids. You know, nothing ever nothing ever happened to them. They were they were totally fine. They were the ones that, you know, did the bullying, really. But yes, now that you say that. Every single one of those guys, when I worked for the sheriff's department in the county where I'm from, every single one of those guys used to get arrested like clockwork. And then they would apologize profusely for all the thing, the horrible things they did to me growing up, like like I still dwelled on that or something, which I guess is what I'm doing right this second. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. I think is if you think like I think like in the nineties, eighties, nineties, it was like, well, sadly, right, more like normal. And probably if someone was bullying you, you you didn't see it as a bully as a bully at, up to a certain extent. For example, I remember that I grew up, and my friend from the neighborhood, each of us has a like a nickname, right? I was little whale because I was really fat. Uh, someone was the big head. Right, and like that, and I remember that it was really interesting because everyone has a, a like a nickname. No one was getting offended, right? And we were having like a like a fun, you know. Was, um, and I remember the ones they come to pick me up, you know, to go to play football, and then they were so used to call me Little Wade that they didn't even remember my name. So my stepmother opened the door because they rang the bell and they said, oh, "Is Little Wade here?" And I said, "She said what?" And I was hearing from the window. As I'm going down, and they were laughing. I said, I don't know. I can't remember his name. But then I remember that, yes, at school, I used to have an English class, right? And there was like, we were, they were mixing students from different ages. And I have uh, one year younger uh, classmate, you know, they were getting all us together. I don't know. And they were, they were making the mix about my last name, right? And I remember the one, one really pissed me off badly, and then I went into a break, and it was I was not a person to be involved in fights. Actually, I've never been in a fight. But I remember that he was going on and on and on, so I went, called him, he turned around and punched him in the face, <laughs> and then I walked away, and then, then the teacher saw me, and then they, they, I was in trouble. But then I was like, well, look, he's bothering me all the time and no one do anything, you know. So I remember this when I was watching the movie. And I think it's good that now these days is um, kind of like we, we are more aware of those things because sometimes you say something, but you don't know how the other person is taking it, right? I mean, in, my, in the neighborhood, I, they were calling me Little Whale and I, I was laughing about that, you know, because every one of us has a name and, and we know there was like, not offensive, um, but in the other point, you know, it could be sometimes offensive. If, like, I don't know, if you don't know the person or or sometimes it's the way you say it, more than what you are saying. Right. Yeah, there was a culture of bullying, and especially I'm this pretty much the same age yes. as Oscar. Oscar would be, be about a year or two older than me, maybe, at the most. And, like, think about the films we used to watch back then. My Bodyguard, remember that? I mean, it's just like a culture of bullying, even like, say, the original Bad News Bears. I mean, it, it was just that, yeah, that's life. You're going to get bullied. Just deal with it until you're old. That was just the way it was back then. 
And yeah, I got the shit bullied out of me. Really terrible. Oh, yeah. And, and what was the advice they gave us? They're like, pick the biggest one out of the group and hit them in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Fight back or just deal with it until you get off. I mean, I find, I mean, bullying's been around for years and years and years. Um, I mean, it's not a, a new thing. It's not, I know. If you talk to your parents, they'll talk about what some of the stuff there, you know, grandparents will tell you about bullying went in there. I mean, bullying's always been around, sort of thing. I mean, I was always quite lucky sort of thing because I was horrible. I mean, if I got bullied, I kind of like beat the shit out of people. I mean, I was kind of violent when I was younger. <laughs> um, so people kind of left me alone. But at the same time, I always knew if someone, if anyone, ever, I think also there's a version, there's a difference between vocal um, bullying and physical, physical bullying. Physical bullying is, yeah, I think that basically if it, if it does come to point to physical boy, bullying, and unfortunately when it comes to parents, normally the parents of the bullies tend to be sticking up for their bullying children sort of thing, which, creates, which <laughs> unfortunately doesn't do anything. And then, then what happens is when you do retaliate, what happens is the bullying parents end up coming after you as well because, oh, you hit little Johnny and little Johnny's innocent. But then right there, you know, that does show you that there's stuff going on at home, that basically situation as well. What I found when it came to people who ever tried to vocally bully me that I didn't, I was always the kind of person that you can yell anything to me. I mean, even today, you can call me anything you want in the street. You can, you know, scream, you know, I've had people scream faggot at me every once in a while or just scream horrible things or whatever. I don't care because I don't, I don't, I don't care. Call me anything you want. It doesn't bother me. Now, if it was someone I cared about, that's different. <laughs> I know that person, that's different. But I always found that I didn't react to it. So therefore, it's like they stop. They don't know what to do because it's like, oh, he's not reacting because they're not, they're not getting action. But if you've ever known bullying, it's never one-on-one. It's always a group against one sort of thing. Right. So it's like, you know, let's, you know, look at me. I got a big dick. Look, look what I'm going to do now. I'm going to go pick on a person that I think might be weak. And it, but the thing is, as soon as you show that you're not weak, then you turn, then they make, then unfortunately embarrasses them. And I was quite lucky that I was, I was quite quick on my feet. So if they would say anything to me, I'd be like, oh, I, I go, sorry, I didn't hear you because your ignorance is showing through. Or I say something stupid like that to them and all their friends would start laughing at them. That's and I remember one time I was walking to work by the hospital and I had these workers and this guy would say faggot to me like four days in a row. And I finally, I just looked at him, I go, listen, I go, you know, if you're going to call me names, can you just mix up, being, there's Fudge Packer, Queer Bait, I just went through all these really bad games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mix it up with the news. I'm really bored with this. And his friends started laughing, and after that, he said nothing, because he was, he was, like, demeaned in front of his friends. And I was like, I was like, call me something else, just come up with something new, something original. Let's <laughs> make, it, make it new. Yeah, make it new, yeah. But then, you know, but, but I mean, but then again, I mean, if he was like threatening me with violence, then we'd be, t- you know, be having a different conversation here, sort of thing. And I think now with bullying, there's also, you know, there's social media bullying, which I really don't understand because I just think if so- someone's social media bullying, I don't understand why you just don't delete them and block them from your page. You know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand oh, that. It's because when that's you go the, to school the next day, everyone's going to be looking at you and whispering and talking about the shit that so and so posted about you. <laughs> it's not like you even know what it's happening you know what i mean they're doing it without you even being aware of it sometimes <laughs> but i'm also saying there's enough evidence there because it's they i mean nothing nothing gets scrubbed off <laughs> of the web as we know 
I mean, I, you know, I think Chad remembers that um, when I had a, you know, a defamation piece pl- um, put on the web about me. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that, that's still there. <laughs> it's never, <laughs> it's always going to be there. I just point people to it now. It's like, oh, I go, if you want to know anything bad about me, just go to this website. <laughs> sort of oh, yeah. For, for real, man. That was, <laughs> that was some insane stuff. Yeah. You know, I used to uh, watch a program, right? Um, and in, and each episode they talk a different subject. And then there was one that, well, well, few of them, they're talking about bullying because was one person was getting bullied all the time. And it did happen that the person who was bullying him all the time is because at home she was being bullied by her mother. Yep. Yep. So because there's something that they need to kind of release, they go, then they like copy that in, in other uh, situations. Yeah. Um, and also I, I remember that when one of you were talking and I, I remember the school that sometimes, for example, there were have, have some classmates that were bullying other people all the time. And in meetings, you could hear the parents thinking, oh yes, my son is really respectful. It's like the, the, their son were like the best, right? And between all the classmates, you realize that those people were like normal or even not even like the kind of normal they were like shit people, you know, like and not really bright as the parents used to think they they were. <laughs> so I imagine also it's also about insecurities. And they say, for example, what what you hate in others is not the others, it's what you hate in you That's seeing right. in others. So well, I've never been bullied much, and I wasn't even like paying attention, you know. Like, I, I mean, I personally kind of played both sides of the fence. I was a little bit of a bully, and I was bullied a little bit, so I kind of played both sides of the fence. If I'm honest, I mean, we had this kid who used to smell of urine, and we used to invite him over. We would hide in the ditch, and when he ride his bike over to our house, we'd put a stick in um, spokes of his bike and watch him flip over and land, and he. I mean, yeah. that, that's pretty horrible. That's, but at the same time, he would come, every time he called, he would come over. And do this. <laughs> it's like, I keep saying that we need to do that to the governor in Texas. <laughs> we need to put a we need to put a, <laughs> a stick in his spokes. My my, yeah, mom, yeah. my mom was a cruel cruel child because she uh, she actually told me the other day that when she was a kid, she would lock all her friends in the sh- in the garden shed <laughs> and then laugh. In the closet, my, I'd be downstairs watching television. My mom, she goes. I haven't heard from your sisters and they'd be, in, they'd be locked in the closet for like three or four hours, you know? And, uh, but, but then again, I had one sister, Kelly, I'm sure you're listening to this, you know, I'm sure you're not going to have I would tell her, I go, you know, I'll give you a dollar to put your tongue on the electric fence. And she would every single time. Oh, get shocked and land on her ass and cry yeah. and go, oh, and my mom was just going on. And I always said, I don't know what she's going on about sort of thing. But, uh, <laughs> But then I would wait a week and do it all over again, and she'd just do it again. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I was a bit, of, you know, so I did do a little bit of, you know, I did do a little bullying, which is kind of horrible. And, you know, I do, you know, when you get older, you realize that you're, you know, you're an <laughs> But so, like a monkey place like, like, why they kept coming over? Why did she keep doing it? <laughs> like, <why? laughs> In a literary sense, do you think that uh, Lindquist was trying to say something? When he has, uh, when Oscar for the first time sticks up for himself when they're trying to put him in the water, yeah. at the same exact time, the little innocent girls find the corpse frozen. So he's sticking up for himself for the very first time 
And at the same time, this innocence over here is being destroyed by finding this body, by finding an act of violence. And so I, I felt like he was maybe saying something about the dichotomy of sticking up for yourself and the dichotomy of bullying. Yeah, I think that, no, I think that it's more connected with what, um, I can't remember the name. The, the girl, the vampire, talking. You need to stand up for yourself and hit them. And you know, sometimes it's like it's like Inception. It's like someone plants the idea on you, and never happens straight away. Maybe you need time to, to process to it. That yeah. Thing, yeah, and then happen. Well, I'm talking about in a poetic sense. Yeah, well, uh, a metaphorical sense. Well, I also think that it also has to deal with um, with Oscar. It also talks about. I think it's a form of puberty as well. I'm not talking about sexual puberty, I'm called mental puberty. So basically, is once you stand up for yourself and then basically you get retribution for that, your mind, you all of a sudden you go through like a mental puberty right there. That's okay. Now you're becoming more grown up and you're looking at things. And with and put that against the young girl that once you see the dead body and you see the humor of that and you find out what the real meaning of life, that is another form of puberty within life, within a lifespan sort of thing. Not sexual puberty at all here, but a mental puberty where basically you you now graduated from the innocence of youth as what you're saying into adulthood or yes. the start of adulthood. But he says that just like you say. Retribution is basically when you come up with the retribution that's a planned retribution with Oscar. It was kind of a planned retribution. He knew you know this kind of leads up to this point, so he knows it's going here. So basically. This is him, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he's gone from the innocence of a child and being bullied to now taking control of the situation, which, Mm. and then you have the, of course, what you said with the innocence of the little girl. And once you do find the faces of death and you do see that, I mean, that does, you know, it's a bit like when your pet, when you, when you, when you have a pet that gets hit hit by a car and, you know, and you, you know, and you're a child and that kind of brings in. You know, the puberty of life sort of thing is like now you know have an understanding of life and death yes yeah that's mm. interesting yeah yeah it's a rite of passage for sure like the cartoon yeah. the snowman when you see the snowman melted at the end and it oh, yeah, just God. signifies like there is life and death and yes even though it's for small kids to watch but <laughs> it just shows about death but, a, what, do you think the, it's a bit like the, the ending of it chapter one where the kids all come together and they make a pact and to, to they, they've fight. shown fear in the face and then they're going to become adults in like 27 years time sort of thing. <laughs> Maybe. Then, well the thing is there's certain milestones in your life that once you've hit that milestone whether it's death or whatever you're going through that you're never that's going to change the way you look at life and you'll never be able to look at life the same way ever again yeah yeah um and you can watch you know you can watch old yeller as much as you want to but that's not gonna that's not gonna you know you can sit there and you can have an understanding and a feeling for this and it might make you cry but until you basically your pet dies or someone close to you dies or something like that you really don't know the enormity of death until it actually happens closely to you and that, you actually have to face you know, a pain you can't explain like yeah that. you're right Keith. you know yeah, it's a pain you just can't explain you know it's a you know, like a, like someone, you say someone close to you dying and, you know, and then you sort of realize like life's about sort of saying goodbye. That's a bit depressing. <laughs> no, but it's true. You know, it's like, you know, you, you seem to get, when, when you get older, you seem to get to know more dead people than you do live people, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's true. You know, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, bit of a bit of a bit of a dark side there. <laughs> I know. I think I felt the same thing when I went to see the rise of Skywalker. You know, I, I felt that, uh, you know, my, my childhood had been completely just murdered 
Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've got to stay a child, child at heart. That's for sure. Disney won't let me. When it um, actually looks at it, also is another thing about single parenting, which actually became a thing in the eighties. Which became, I know my parents divorced me by seventy two. By the time I finished school, it's like all my friends' parents were divorced. But I, I remember being the only kid in school that parents were divorced. And then, you know, by the 80s, that became like a regular thing. So we now we have the fatherlessness, and, which mm. is basically a general, I mean, Generation X. I mean, it's very rare that all of us, you know, I'm a Generation X. I know Chad is as well. Yeah. And I mean, very same rare thing. That our parents are still together. Yeah. So same yeah, same thing. My, my mother, my mother throughout my life has had nine divorces. I'm not exaggerating in the slightest. Oh. She's had more divorces than there are Beatles Revolution songs. All right. It's, uh, but, but I remember being in the first grade and, you know, my mom being single and she was working a night shift and, you know, here I am, I can't remember how old I was in the first grade, but here, here I am. She's working nights. I'm staying the night by myself. I'm cooking my own dinner. I'm getting myself ready for school and going. And then I, I look at like modern children today and just how coddled they are. And I'm Uh like, man, they would not survive in like 1979 at all they're calling the snowflake generation i'm like i hate to keep bringing it back to sexuality and stuff but is this me is this just me or was there hints that the father was supposed to be gay and that was his lover i had see this is in the book i kind of didn't really know a little too much because the book kind of had thing in the, in the movie. It kind of it, it kind of points more to that direction, sort of thing for me. Yeah. In, the movie. in the book, I didn't know if it was homosexual or it was he was more in love with alcohol than he was with his son. Oh, definitely cool. the alcohol, yeah. But because his friend shows up and he's like, "Oh, oh, you're here," and then it's like, and then his friend comes out with the alcohol bottle, and then it turns into something that. That I said comes across like homosexual, but then when I start th- this, I read this when I was reading this again, fresh from there. The first time I thought, oh, God, that's something weird. Is there something, are they going to like sleeping in the bed together later? Oscar, because Oscar leaves, doesn't he? So we don't know what happens to those two. But I thought it was more like that. But then on reflection here, I got thinking more could it be like the alcoholism that he was in love with the alcohol, not the friend sort of thing? Because, oh, right. you know, here's the alcohol. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Is that a werewolf? He says my, friend, gonna, my friend Jack Daniels. <laughs> because, but then we don't really know, I mean, and this is what's quite interesting. We have all these, you know, backstories and stories being thrown out, but we never really understand why Oscar's parents divorced. We we don't have any. Re- yeah. We don't know about that at all. Mm. Mm. But then you the find, did you find interesting? Uh, for me, it was interesting when I was watching the movie that when he hit the the class, the other classmate in the face, and they, they from the school they called to the mom. She's saying, "Well, what do you want from me? He doesn't have a father, right? Uh, well, he has a father, but it's like a kind of like the father doesn't know anything, and he." The, he doesn't even tell uh, his mom that they're bullying at school. He just said that he fell on a, a rock or something like that. So, well, the the see this this is another thing. It's like yeah, Oscar has a father, but he basically, even though the father's alive and he only well, he lives about an hour away, sort of thing. Um, but we do have a father that kind of when he does phone Oscar, it's kind of out of sense of duty, out of than sense of love. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and basically, I mean, he, I mean, I think he, when he goes and stays with his father, isn't this due to a point where things are really rough at Oscar with Oscar, his mom's having a hard time dealing with what's going on with Oscar on a social, on a social matter. Cause everything's kind of going, you know, things are getting really bad at school and the bullying is increasing and she's learning about this sort of stuff. So she sends him to his father just so he could help out. So that way he thinking that the father would give Oscar, you know, some companionship and some love and some understanding and someone to be there for him and help him, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Oscar will open more to his dad because maybe it's a male thing or a boy thing. And of course that doesn't happen. And then Oscar walks all the way home. It's like, okay. (laughs) I was like, see, we used to get that all the time uh, in the eighties, especially, you know, kids who grew up with single parents, my, my mother, and I knew several other kids who had uh, separated parents that would say the same thing. My mother would use that as a sort of punishment, you know, like a threat. They're like, they're like, if you don't straighten up and fly right, you know, I'm going to send you to live with your dad. Oh no, not my dad. Wow. (laughs) Maybe or, or it's some, uh, another thing that your parents would do as well. I mean, you know, especially after divorce, especially if you're a lot like your dad. My mom would sit there and go, "Oh God, you're just like your father." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, okay, well, you can't win. You're either going to send me to live with someone I'm like, or I'm too much like. <laughs> I can't win. <laughs> But I mean, and but there was stigmatism going on with you know the the mothers at the time as well. It's like you know, you know, there wasn't um, there wasn't like a support or like an understanding. It'd be like, you know, oh okay, well thanks for dropping Johnny off, and then you know the, the mom will go off to work, and all the mother and mothers go give that look to each other. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Oh, it must be so hard. Oh, look at her. Who just or or something happened. And the mother was doing successful at their job. Who does she think she is? So it was one of the others. Like, you know, she's working a menial job to make the, oh, you know, there's that look of pitch in their face. If she's doing better than what they thought she was, it's like, who now she thinks she's better than us because she's a working mother. You know what I mean? So it's like, so that single mother can never win in any kind of circumstances and yeah. not have that much support wow. from outside. There's that going on as well. Anybody read Shuggy Bane? What's what? Shuggy Bane? It's like it's it won a shit ton of awards. There's a book that came out last year, but uh, no, right it's a, like this Scottish alcoholic mother raising uh, children on her own. It just it, it has all the themes of everything you're talking about. Yeah, Irvin Welsh sort of like thing. Yeah, yeah, it does actually. Yeah, I think it's great if people can turn like all this, you know, all this depression and sadness and. And turn it into something into art. That's that's a true artist, you know. Right. You know, like Van Gogh or whatever. Yeah, you know, what I'm talking about guys. You know, yeah. I think it's wonderful. I just just love people like that. You know, uh, Yusama. You know, the yeah, Japanese. Another thing I think that's quite interesting is the Ethiopian side of this, because even though we have Hakan, who's basically um, in love with Eli, Eli is basically a. 400 year old person and a young boy boy a young boy's body that's been that's been mutilated and having no sex or so would that make haken a pedophile (laughs) okay you know because well uh, i think getting a blowjob from a child sex worker who's had all their teeth pulled out would make him a pedophile yeah oh yeah yeah Yeah, that's on the checklist i think 
That was I, I. You talk. You're extreme horror writer, right? Splatterpunk and stuff. That isn't. I, I don't. That's a scene, dude. That, yeah. I mean, dude, don't I mean? I, don't dude, tempt me. That's don't fucking hard. Matthew, to go. I don't, I don't, don't tempt me. There. Oh my god, I'm all. I'm already steady, like, boys. Steady, steady. Yeah. I'm already like like the black sheep of of the splatterpunk community. Don't 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 give me any ideas. <laughs> don't man. get me any further. Down. It's pretty dark. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I didn't understand is Hagen would choose his victims to drain their bloods, but they had to be over a certain age. Were, were they like post puberty or something? Or like, yeah, look, yeah. Oh, maybe it, it just tastes different. Maybe it's vintage. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I thought it was kind of. I just thought it kind of odd that the victims that he chose tend to be like sixteen-year-olds, sixteen-year-old boys. Right. With, you know, which is kind of bizarre. You know, I mean, and not not just bizarre that basically it's like they would be sixteen year old boys, and not that that you know that's that's bizarre in itself. But you would just think that if you're going to get blood for your female or your vampire at home to earn her love and respect and the money, it wouldn't matter who the victim would be, right? Right. Well, yeah. I suppose, like, like you know, maybe they wanted f- f- pure, pure blood. What you mean, like, go to Marks and Spencers rather than uh, then, a co-op, then <laughs> like a reduced item, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. Like, no, pure, no, it's the pure, the there were rules about the blood. The person had to be alive when the blood was spilled. Yeah. We took the blood yeah, from the dead person. Right. It was yeah. bad. Yeah, the course, there's that fabulous scene where she gets high on the morphine. That, I, I gotta love that. that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Sit on the sofa watching the TV with her, and the lady puts her head in her lap. So, well, so surreal and weird. The well, another are- thing with Haken, which is quite weird, is that even though he's in love with Eli, and there's no sexualness going on between them outside yeah, of just you know, the kids, yeah. but it's almost like the pedophile that he is. We know that that's where he's going for, but at the same time, he's living with something. It's a bit like an alcoholic living in a liquor store, <laughs> right? Christmas <laughs> right? holiday. Yeah, that's a choice. We can do that. <laughs> you didn't know about that, <laughs> which I thought was quite interesting because it's like he's got something. Of course, it does. Uh, you know, when Haken goes to kill himself, and of course, he doesn't die, and, and unfortunately. He becomes a vamp, a mindless vampire himself, and of course, you know when he tries to rape Eli and stuff like this, and how that transpires, and all of a sudden, it's like all that sexual urge that he's been ever since he's been in the him and Eli been together, it's turned into this sort of thing, and then of course, you know, of like a volcano eruption, mm. which I thought was very very clever the way that he was able to write that in and you know lead this up, and then we get this scene here. Brilliant. Another thing I quite liked is the socioeconomic classes as well, and what we have with the, the the crew that were hanging around together at the pub, and they go to the pub every night, and then you know, and then we get you know the female, um, what's her name, Virginia. There we go, Virginia. Oh, yeah. um, and then Virginia basically starts turning, and when the cat's turning again, her, and she basically, and then she did that how she commits suicide, and I thought that was quite an interesting way of doing it sort of thing you know to like burn herself alive and just open the curtains and let herself go which it's kind of weird because virginia up at that point she's kind of like just the woman that's hanging around this group of men 
And she's, you know, this guy, the guy who won't commit to her. She's kind of like the weak woman. And then what we get is the, mo- the most strongest thing anyone can do is to sacrifice yourself be- and in that way. But, and you got to remember the Viking, is, you know, the right of death is to, you know, you have to burn the body to, to yeah, purify to, the body. To Valhalla. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like you give yourself to Odin, mm. Odin, to Valhalla, you know. So like she did the responsible thing. Point. She did the responsible thing, but she also did the most mature thing of almost anyone in this book sort of thing. Because all the adults are, they come across as a, adults, but, you know, the mother is kind of have, you know, she's, she's you know, Mother of Oscar, she's doing what she's can, she's doing the best she can, but she's not she's not the ultimate adult, is she? She's trying to juggle. The father of Oscar is an alcoholic. This group of men are basically down at the pub every day, and they're not really they're talking about better than lives and they're talking about having a better life. They're not really doing anything about having a better life. They're just kind of like, you know, and then mm-hmm. you know, and then we, and then you, and the one that they look down on where Virginia, she's kind of like the you know the woman who's just hanging around them sort of thing she's just hanging around there for god knows you know they they, they come and they also feel like they're just put up with her you know she's just there but then she ends up doing the most adult thing that any of the adults do in this whole book they take responsibility for what happened and basically you know burns herself alive in the most horrible way possible because you know when a vampire when a vampire burns to death, they don't burn from the outside in; they burn from the inside out. <laughs> so oh, it's like, oh my gosh! Oh. You know, oh. where the bone, the, you know, basically the bones start turning the ash, the starts, thing, you know, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, if you've ever had bone pain, you know, bone pain is probably the worst pain you can ever have, sort of thing, because it's, you know, it's like a cold wind. So I thought. And I like the way that the author was able to do that. And this is one of those things yeah. that, again, when I read it the first time, I didn't, I, you know, I kind of read any, you know, when you read things for the first time, and it kind of washes over you and you pick things up. But when you read it the second time, you start noticing little, little juxtapositions I didn't notice before. Absolutely. And, you know, and I have to sit there and say that after reading this book a second time, now I want to go back through and start reading all his other books again, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like the, the vampire folklore. It's really interesting. It is quite. You know, um, I remember uh, in Ed Wood, like, you know, I remember uh, the uh, character was playing Bela Lugosi, you know, he was saying, you know, you want to make out, Eddie, take a girl to see Dracula, because they relate to the blood. <laughs> blood's, blood's the main thing, like, isn't it? it? seems like blood's the most precious thing on the planet, I guess. It's blood's a life force. Mm, monotonic. For <laughs> all breathing, all breathing beings. Um, before we um, give our ratings, what about the the retaliation of in the pool sequence at the end? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it was justified, or do you think it was Eli went too far? Huh. I mean, oh, I we mean, we all wanted to see it. Yeah, there you go. yeah. <laughs> it's unanimous <laughs> we were waiting for it but yeah. uh is anything justified is there really good and evil i mean you know well yeah you know, they get into those kids life you know they had the tough life the, he burnt their photo album he's not exactly innocent is he he's <laughs> uh, not innocent oscar retelling no but then again the boy that is bullying oscar is being that savagely bullied himself to the other. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And it just yeah. continues and it's like it's a proliferation, you know. It's uh... And even with um, 
and even when it's the brother holding him down and the and the younger brother doesn't really want that much part of it, but the younger brother gets the retribution just as much as the older brother does. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that's and I found I found that quite an interesting look at it sort of thing because I think if this was I think if this was like an American written book or something like that, I got a feeling that the younger one probably would have ran away and never would never have faced the wrath of what happened. But because I think it's European and, we, and if you've seen European horror, you know, it seems to be a lot more, a little bit more graphic and a lot more, it's very rare, a happy ending in a European horror anyway, sort of thing, you know, whether it's switchblade romance or whole couture, depending on how, or, you know, martyrs or livid or so on and so <laughs> forth. But, um, yeah, but for me, I have to sit there and say that I kind of sorry for the younger brother who's doing the bullying to Oscar. Not that, not that he he deserved punishment, but I thought that that punishment kind of went far and above beyond. It made it an exciting read, though. But beyond karma. <laughs> but it kind of, it's only because I. I think because the author kind of goes inside his head and says he doesn't want to, you know, and you find out that he doesn't want to be a part of this, that he's been pushed into this. And he's really like, you know, and he's, he's kind of, he always says something about, you know, he does ask his brother, don't, 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 you know, he's trying to stop it at the same time. And he can't because the brother's like overpowers him anyway. So, and then to have him part of the massacre, it's kind of like mm-hmm. kind of bittersweet sadness to, yeah. to something. Ancient. For me personally, so.
So I guess this brings us to how we're going to rate Let the Right One In. So out of five-star rating, let's find out how each of us rates this. Starting with you, Leandro, how do you rate um, Let the Right One In the novel? Four and a half, because, I mean, it's the first time I read something like um, that takes place in uh, Sweden, you know. Um, I don't read books about vampires. I just read before an interview with the vampire. And I really like it. I like it how it mix different topics like, I don't know, vampires and all the things that we have been chatting in a really cool way. So, yes, four, 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 four point five. And what about your chat? How, how many do you rate this? Well, first of all, uh, I spoke to your co-host, Vicky, last night, and she said she, since she couldn't be here today, she wanted me to put in her two cents and say that she rated this film four edibles instead of stars. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, you know, since we're going to go away from, from the whole star rating system, I would, I would rate this movie four castrated penises <laughs> because, uh, I mean, first of all, like I said, the from the very beginning, yeah, from the very beginning of the show, I, I began this journey with the American film, which, you know, was, was enjoyable. I like Chloe Grace Moretz. I liked her in kick-ass she was the daughter I always wished I could have in that movie. So, uh, you know, I'm like, I, I liked Let Me In. It was okay. And then I watched the Swedish film, and I liked it a lot more. Then I read the book, and it just really hit home. So as, as far as personal experiences and growing up and how the crazy things work in my brain, it's a five, man. The book yeah. is a five. And what about yourself, Craig? What do you rate it? Um. I really enjoyed it, uh, and I would give it. Um, uh, give, I'll give it five edibles. David, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, anyone who can. Well, I know nowadays it's gone past the sort of uh, pen to paper, but anyone who can sit down and sort of just envisage and sort of like, put together a book deserves five puncher holes. You know, and <laughs> five bites. I think definitely no, definitely five. It's just great, you know. And it's it, as you say, it's it's taking an old topic, or not so old topic, but uh, maybe a fairly well used topic, like you know, with well, what's happened over in Hollywood and everything about vampires, and just really kind of brought it down to a ground level, and give it that coolness that it needs, you know, because that's that's Sweden, you know, it's beautiful up there, you know. I'll give it what five. About, what about yourself, Matthew? How how do you rate it? Easily uh, five ounces of purple Hindu Kush. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I, I like to hear that. Yeah. Well, we'll do the film next, I guess. But the, the, the coldness of Sweden. It, yeah. it, the, I thought the film, that was, that's where it really excelled. But I guess we'll do that in a minute. But uh, yeah, it takes the vampire myth and uses it to explore society in, in, in so many ways, from um, yeah. gender issues to, to bullying to mutilation to parents, to divorce, to relationships. It's so deep. And um, it, I think it's a great example of how the horror genre could be art, can, can, can um, dissect society and hold a mirror up. And um, absolutely fabulous book. Love it. For me, I'm going to give this five stars. Let the Right One In novel um, is one of those things I think needs to be considered a modern classic. Uh, I think it from years to come, I hope that it does get that moniker. That's, you know, one of those mandatory readings. 2004 for me was a very good year. This also 
two of my most favorite um, modern fiction books came out at that time was Let the Right One In. The other one was The Book Thief, another fantastic book that I loved as well. But Let the Right One In, I sit there and, you know, it turned me on to this author. I can't stop reading the author. I want to know more about this author. Everything that he comes out with, I read and love because it's just taking horror and moving it forward and giving it a modern take and spin on it without without basically you know coming coming in with your own voice and stuff like this and it's nice that you know you know and i'm finding it a lot now with a lot of the new authors and stuff like this that are coming out um i think i read your book matthew um i read chad and there's a, there is a new voice in horror that has emerged now and you two are also included in that john oh, Emerson. thank you and basically they're taking horror and turning it into a modern age we're not to do you know we're, we move past the stephen king and the clyde barker sort of thing and they're excellent i'm not there's nothing going there but they're moving things to a modern stance and it's good that you know we do have authors that are taking things and making it modern that that before you know before 2000 basically if you wanted to read horror you had to go back to the 70s or the 80s or or the classics love oh and now we and because everything else kind of was a copy of that but now we got the new voice and the new thing and and Lindquist I believe is was the kind of one he's kind of like the person who's like kind of heralding that to a modern classic and everyone else is making making their own voices now within horror that's why I think let the right one in is should be mandatory reading if you're a horror fan and if you're a fiction fan I also think that you don't need to be a horror fan to enjoy this either because it's, it's a it's a book that actually crosses so many different genres within its own with its own thing and yes it does have a the horrorness going through this but it has a social economic understanding of it it has a review of the 1980s it has a fiction you know a masterful 80s fiction booker prize kind of thing themes going through it as well and that's why i think what the right went in is is one of those books that probably should be you know read by almost everyone and even if you hate horror, I think Let the Right One In will be something that you would actually enjoy and get so much out of it. And then you come away feeling well-fed after reading it as well. It doesn't leave you empty. And it, and it does leave you hopeful. And, oh. and it does kind of put a little... You know, the last paragraph I remember of Let the Right One In after reading it the first time and the second time, you, you kind of left with a like, slight little smile on your face when basically Oscar's on the train and Eli's you know, in this suitcase, and off they go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can say, yeah. Like that. <laughs> it continued to travel around the world and have our ditches. <laughs> yeah. and it, you know, we do get like a short story that does mention them. That you know, as Matthew's saying, and I do agree with them. It doesn't kind of live up to expectation. It's one of those things that you want to know more, but you hope that he that we hope that we never get a sequel book to this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. It ends perfectly every time, you know, like Owen Meany. I love the prayer for Owen Meany is one of my favorite books. And so is it widow for a year, but I never want to see a sequel to those because even though they tear away my heartstring, my heart gets pulled out of my chest. Every time I read these, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to hear what I'm told because that, that is perfect enough in every single way.
Well, this brings us to the right one in the film, which is a 2008 Swedish romantic horror film directed by Thomas Alfredson. It was based on the 2004 novel. Um, um, Lynn Viss also wrote the screenplay. The film tells the story of a bully 12-year-old boy who develops a friendship with a strange child in Blackenburg, a suburb of Stockholm in the early 1980s. Um, the film adoption of Lambert's novel began in development in 2004 when John Nordling acquired the rights to produce the project. Alfredson, unconcerned with the horror and vampire conventions, decided to tone down many elements of the novel and focus primarily on the relationship between the two main characters and explore the darker side of humanity. Selecting the lead actors involved a year-long process with open casting held all over Sweden. In the end, Kerr Hardenberg and Lena Landersen were chosen for the leading roles. Landersen's role in the film was dubbed by Ila Kanya, whose principal photography took place in 2007, uh, said that her role was one of the most perfectly cast, one of the most perfectly actresses of anyone of our time and anyone in the future. Um, the film was produced by um, Swedish television and with support from Swedish Film Institute, the, North, the Nordisk Film and TV Foundation, WEG, and Canal Plus. Let the Right One In would premiere on the Gothenburg Film Festival on 26th of January 2008, where it received the Nordic Film Prize. It was released in Sweden on 24th of October 2008 by Sandra Matadon. The film received critical acclaim with praise for the performance of the two leads, the cinematography, screenplay, and direction. It won several awards, following the Founders Award for Best Narrative Feature at the Tribeca Film Festival, as well as four Goldberg Awards, including Best Director, Best Cinematographer, Best Screenplay, and it also won Saturn Award for Best International Film, an Empire Award for Best Horror Film at the 63rd British Academy of Film Festival. The film was not a f- nominated for Best Film, not in the English language, and an American remake titled Let Me In was directed by Matt Reeves and released in 2010. And we cut to the trailer. I'll sit there and say the fuck you to American Academy Awards for <laughs> part of their foreign mm-hmm. screenplay because they thought that, horror, that a horror film should never be nominated in their prestigious foreign film category and that's the reason why it wasn't so now we're going to cut to the trailer i've let the right one in and we were right back Hade du tyckt om mig ändå?
Hello, welcome back to the Literary License Podcast, where we're talking about Let the Right One in the film from 2008. And we'll start with you, Craig. What are your thoughts on the film Let the Right One In from 2008? Um, this film, I, th- I thought it was a great film, and the, the cinematography by um, Ho- Van Hoytema, I thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, they just got it so right, and that the, the location, for example, reminded me of a place in England called that we nicknamed Concrete Jungle, which is in Bermondsey, where it's these little, it's very just um, like what David said about Lego blocks. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> it's right. very <laughs> yeah, but, um, um, like like the Pete Seeger song, yeah, little boxes. And, you know? and I was wondering in the film, like, where are all the people, for example? But <laughs> the the film, the sense that I got, the emotion that I got from the film was um, almost like serenity. It was so everything was crisp and ah, there wasn't the too much incidental music or yeah. an overarching score or anything. It was just, it was really minimalist. And even the trees were the composition of the trees, for example, in some of the shots um, when the boys hanging upside down, I think it's in one of the film posters as well. You can just see it was just yeah. a beautifully, beautiful film. Um, I, uh, I was rooting for, Oscar for so I, I really I know it sounds a bit disturbing but I wanted him to be bitten yeah. and then turn and then seek revenge on people I was really rooting for him mm. but I really liked the interplay and how the, the actual the out the actual outcome was fine as well that was it was just brilliant but my favorite scene of the film was um when the girl asked to be let in and he was contemplating it. And then all the blood came from her, like every, like her nose oh, and her eyes. Yeah, and, yeah. and then you realize how vulnerable she, that she really is, even though she's this powerful being, she's, she, you know, and it was, a, it was a really interesting interplay yeah. on, on um, power and um, um, innocence and stuff. And it, it was just really beautifully <coughs> done. I, I, even when I, when it had finished, I thought, wow, that was a brilliant film. Um so yeah, that was my uh, that was my take. It's funny. I'm glad it won the awards that it was done oh, for. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, it was just even the location. I mean, it was. I mean, the, the coldness and the, the the location stuff, and yeah, it was just a, a really beautiful piece of cinematography there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Craig said, when 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 I mean, the vampire has to be invited in. Yeah, but she's like, there's a guy here, Peter Bradshaw from the Guardian, he described it as a hemophilia of rejection. <laughs> pretty heavy sort of thing, you know but uh, yeah just great this the location is brilliant and also for me I'll just give you a little picture of, of Blackberg Station which features in the movie and it actually looks like a mouth it almost <laughs> looks like a mouth with the teeth showing you know which is quite strange I don't know if like you just I think since we've been doing the podcast and been talking to you guys I'm looking at things in a different way because you talk about lots of things, you know, like kind of bit abstract and it's really interesting. You make you look at things a bit differently, you know, that's really interesting. You know, that's the great thing about the writer's mind, you know, I use guys. And I think it's like, it, it, it just makes you sort of like get a new eye. I like that, you know, it's mm. really interesting. Cause I look back on like old movies like Blade Runner or something. And think, Oh boy. You know, I didn't see that bit last time. Now it's been pointed out like and stuff, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I was on the side of, um, of Oscar also, you know, I just wanted everything to come right from you know, and but beautiful movie. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't praise us writers too much. It's mostly the weed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's talking to you. <laughs> it is an entity. <laughs> what about yourself, Matthew? What are your thoughts of the film? 
Oh, I, I adore this film. You know, it's funny. The first time I saw it, I had never heard of it before. Yeah. And it had just come out on Netflix. And this is actually when Netflix mailed you DVDs before they were <laughs> streaming. And I remember the, 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 the description said, Oscar's obsessed with serial killers. And now a serial killer has moved to his town. <laughs> and that's all I knew about the movie when I and I was like, well, that sounds I like serial killers. <laughs> so I, you know, and it, it blew me away. I mean, I was just and the weird thing is I actually had the swine flu at the time. That shit was messed up. Like I, I was like in a hallucinatory state, and um, that film. Just, <laughs> I mean, it changed me. It, it blew me. It opened my mind. It blew me away. I thought I was seeing Shakespeare. Dickens, all I mean, just so many things going on in there, and I oh, yeah. uh, loved it. And what about yourself, Leandro? What are your thoughts of the film? Uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was really interesting for me that um, when he was cutting, you know, the piece of paper, and he had like a like a special folder where he was collecting all those um, pieces of news, and then the when the um, at the beginning, when the police officer asked, asked them something to the class and he was the only one who knows, how could you identify a thing, uh, someone that has been in a fire or something like that? Um, really enjoyed when he hit the, the, the boy that was bullying him. And it was really interesting how, like, to me, it's like he hit him, cut the ear, and the, the boy was crying, I don't know, as, as he had been shot, right? And basically how kind of, like, Probably he, that's what I imagine. He went and told his brother that this man has cut his ear and now he's the victim, right? And really lo- love the, the end when she appeared and like killed them all. You can see the arm like going down the water. Uh, I really like the effects of some effects, you know, it's like, I really like when, you know, sometimes either you have really good effects or you don't have the effects, but you have a really good way to to tell the story without, like, a big budget. You know, like, for example, you see that arm going down, you realize that she chopped it all, you know, <laughs> like or the head. Uh, or you see the, the feet going on the water, which means that she was flying and dragged him to the end of the pool. Uh, really, yeah, really, really interesting uh, where he's uh, said the story because also it's, I think it's kind of like give you like a kind of roughly idea how is the life there. I really don't, not a huge fan or thinking about about thinking, of, okay, the life in that place is like that. Just because there is a movie that I haven't seen yet, which is called Fargo, right? And then I went to war to North Dakota and I haven't seen the movie, but when I arrived there, I told them, ah, you know, there is a movie Called Fargo, she said, "Yes, that's not that's." Uh, they said, "North Dakota is not like that. We don't we don't feel identified with that movie." So I think it's like when someone watch a movie that is from a place that you don't know, probably it's not a really good idea to think that oh, okay, it's like that. Like Sweden is like that. I think it's much more. I think it's like kind of like I don't know. It's like a fine line, you know. Um, really. Really enjoy how, as I said before, how the author, well, the director in this case, put together the, you know, the things um, and a much, I don't know, a vampire story with um, crime, with something, the problems that we're having in the society these days. 
it was I don't know what do you think I'm going to ask you, you, you we can talk about for me it was really interesting because at the end of the movie it's like okay this man that was with this girl at the beginning I thought maybe he could be his dad her dad I don't know but yeah. for me you know, when he was in the hospital she went and said okay kind of like I I saw it like that this is the orange and he gave her the, the neck so, so she could have food And it's kind of like now she got someone else, which is the right one that she would never attack. Well, what was supposed to happen in that sequence uh, in the book itself is that um, Heiken, need, um, he had to disfigure himself because he was going to get caught. So basically yes. he wanted Eli to drain him of all his blood so that way it would kill him. So basically he's offering his life to Eli and so he would die and Eli would live. But unfortunately... Due to the fact that they, you know, they were interrupted, that's why um, Haken gets turned um, at that point, which was mm -hmm. not the intention. He was supposed to give his life up um, for Eli, but because that didn't happen and it got interrupted and all his blood wasn't drained, he turned into a vampire himself. So that's what okay. happens. There. So we get a kind of a we kind of a kind of, we kind of get a, a movie that's fantastic on its own, but the book kind of fills in. The, some of the spacing that mm -hmm. goes on sort of thing, as you'd notice sort of thing. I can't wait for the showtime. I hope, hopefully they do it all, man. Mm. No, what about yourself, Chad? What are your thoughts on the film? Well, and, and I said earlier in the episode that my, my first uh, introduction to this work was the Matt Reeves American film, which yeah, it's, it, it's exactly that. It's an American film. It, It focuses mainly on like the police officer that's trying to solve this crime. And uh, there's, there's a heavy romantic relationship between the two main characters, which, I mean, they even changed their names in the American version just to make it American. I don't know why we're so scared of our own genitals in this country, but we totally are. And uh, it's, I, uh, my, my wife had seen let the right one in, In, in a film class in college and uh, we were discussing let me in and she's like oh I think I've seen the uh, the foreign version of this film and uh, we we watched let me in and she's like no 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 she's like you need to see the original so I I watched the original um, and then waited and read the book when I'd been invited to be on this show and the the Swedish version Oh my God, man! There, there is no comparison. No offense against Matt Reeves, uh, who who directed the American version. I, I love Cloverfield. I uh, I'm going to see the Batman tonight. I mean, Matt Reeves is is a great great filmmaker, but he he is an American. He's in that American mindset. The Swedish version of this film is is one of the best vampire movies I've ever seen in my life. It just it gets it gets past some of the old tired like stereotypes of previous vampire films and takes you in a completely new direction. If, if you're one of those kids who had a hard time growing up, you can, you can relate to the characters in this show. Uh, I highly recommend it. I mean, just move past. Uh, and this is another problem here in America where people don't want to read subtitles. Like, I don't want to have to read my movies. That's exactly what they sound like. <laughs> 
<laughs> take it take a chance take a chance on this film and and watch it yes you have to read i get it i know it's hard i know it's difficult alabama but just just <laughs> give give this film a chance it's amazing <laughs> myself i read the book first um and i came across the book basically was i used to go to the bookstore and then there would be like four books for 20 quid i got this the book thief and the girl with the dragon tattoo and another book um so then the film came out and i thought um and i think it was playing here at the everyman which is an art house cinema so i yes. thought oh i'll go see that i wrote the book and i have to sit there and say when i first saw the movie i was a bit disappointed because of there were because i read the book first and there was so much left out but um i i did buy you know i did buy the d the deep but you know but it, the thing is the movie haunted me long after i watched it though it did haunt, it haunted, the book haunted me and the movie was haunting me in a different way and then the dvd came out i, I buy the dvd i bought the dvd and watched it at home and loved it and because i had a bit of a space and that my expectations i then realized that we have something very special here because what we have is a fantastic movie that deals everything that unfolds like a, you know, like a flower blooming very, very slowly. And it unfolds in front of you with these comfortable magnificence. Everything's done in a silence within a silence and what unspoken quality about it. But then we also got something that's a screenplay written by the author of the book. And what we have basically is, companion piece that they can they're like a companion piece for each and they fit like hand in glove with each other and i know i look at the movie now it's like one of my you know i think it's one of the best horror films that we've had within the last 20 30 years really because we got something that's so fantastic of its time it's its own thing and you know i mean the cat sequence in the move you know i mean you know maybe they could have spent a little bit more on the cgi there but it doesn't really take away from anything because we watching it. I always kind of cringe at the cat sequence in, the, in this movie a little bit. It doesn't take me out of the movie or anything like that. It's like, oh, they could have done that better. It's kind of like that, and I move on. But watching it this time, I actually noticed that that cat sequence actually kind of fits in with this. Gr- this movie has a Grimm's fairy tale view to it. There's a Grimm's fairy tale view, and that yeah, cat right. kind of fits into this Grimm fairy tale. Yeah, and I never actually realized that the first time. I, you know, so before the first time, I was like, "Oh my god, they could they left this out of the book." You know, you know what you do when you read a book and then see movie? Oh, they could have done it, uh, and uh, and they had enough time. But then another thing I realized on this feeling is that this film is almost two hours long and it doesn't feel like a two hour long film. Not at so all. When I first came no. out of it, I really thought that they had, you know, they could add another 30, 40 minutes to it. It wouldn't make a difference. I realized that 120 minutes is like, we're lucky we got 120 minutes because normally they would cut something like this down to 90. If they're lucky for a horror film. And um, so, yeah, so I find that this is a fantastic, beautiful film. That's a great companion piece to the book. And the book is a great companion piece to the film. And we got something that we very rarely get. I think the only time we ever get this kind of a companion piece is when John Irving wrote the screenplay for Cider House Rules. And then we got the movie Cider House Rules directed by Lars Holmstrom, a Swedish director. Um, and, you know, and that was like the perfect fit as well. There's like, you know, you got this thing that they complement each other. You can read the book and get so much more. And, but yeah, you can read, you can watch the film without reading the book and then get so much more out of it as well and fill in your own blanks. And then when you realize that 
the blanks that you filled in because they're not in the film that when you do read the book, the blanks that you think that the blanks that you filled in are there in the book. <laughs> Widow for a year was kind of like that too. Another John Irving. Did you yeah. see that movie, The Hole in the Floor? Yeah. And it was, it was just the one little section of the book, you know? Yeah. And that's the, um, from Widow for a year. So, uh, yeah. was that that's, that's one of my favorite books of all time. Widow for a year. Yeah. Made I me mean, cry so many times. If you no. want to know anything about writing despair, anxiety, loss, read the first hundred pages Widow for a year when he's taking his daughter and they're, and they're going through the stories of the blank, the blank wall where the mother's right, taking the all the pictures of the dead brothers. And they go through the story and this is loss and this emptiness. And this is the way that's described. I mean, it just tears your heart apart. And, you know, right. it's one of the most, you know, that's why I love that widow for a year. It's like, it, it needs more bears, though. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> always got the bears. You always got bears, <laughs> bears, and um, bears, sex. boobies, bears, boobies, and wrestling. Yeah. yeah. Well, bear with us. Yeah. The will come. Bear with and, us. And, and, and the sex is never, and the, but the sex is never normal either. It's always no, like with someone. Not with, not with bears. <laughs> it's an older woman. Natasha yeah. <laughs> Kinski in a bear suit. <laughs> I'll bear all. Don't worry. Sorry. Yeah. So, but it's, it's like funny. Well, that's on the dark. You know, they all. They all they, you know, it's funny. with was in the open windows. Sorry, Sorry, you got me on the bear now. You got me on the ropes. Spit it out, baby. Yeah, spit it. Spit that bear out. No, 70% of the casting was uh, actually, the guy was talking about being being a musician. Like he says, it's interesting. He's a good push push B against A, you know, and the 12 chord turnaround in blues is like, you say you play A, uh, sorry, A, A, B. It's funny. I was like, I was trying to think of my mind. I was reading that a little bit about how how does how does A sound with B? But then again, I'm thinking, yeah, well, the B note is in A somewhere. Like you know, so that was interesting. That's his cast. See the guy singing on another level. This is what I'm saying about this podcast. It makes you think about things in a different way. You know, that's that's life. You know, it shouldn't always just be very shutted and you know, pigeonholed and just wrestling with bears all the time. You know. <laughs> 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 so I mean for me um, not that I went in it's just a perfect piece of filmmaking and and I love it that we also get something that we very rarely get in films is that we get scenes that just are able to breathe and have a life of their own you know mm. and because normally you know I also like it doesn't hit you over the head with stuff you know it's not telling you what's going on it's like it's a bit that, one of my biggest problems is when I watch yeah. something and it's like, you'll watch a scene and then the, the next scene will be the actor telling you what happened or what you just saw. And it's like, well, we never were there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> that doesn't happen here. You know what I mean? He, he, that, n- there's never more, that one scene in here. Or, you know, they're reiterating what you just saw or just what you just experienced. They just keep moving forward. and just It's a bit of a mystery. It's when you, first, the first time I saw it, I didn't know it was about vampires. I had no, I thought it was about serial killers. And it opens up with him in the window with the knife. And I'm like, just what the hell is happening? Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> but, um, you know, they, the, 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 the movie has the scene at the end where he does the Morris code on the, te- on the, yeah. on the trunk, and that's not in the book. I, he wrote the screenplay. It must've come to him after he had already published the book. You're almost like, man, you need to go back and add that or something. It's so 
such so crucial, so good. Yeah, so poetic as well. Yes, yes. Mm. I mean, um, you know, and, and the Morris Code press is Kiss K I S S. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I also the music references in the book. Uh, that I don't know why they didn't put like Kiss and Iron Maiden and stuff in there. Maybe it's <laughs> licensing. I don't know. I like the image of her in an Iron Maiden shirt. I always like, so I picture her in an Iron Maiden shirt. <laughs> she got her in the trash. Did you get this out of the trash? Yeah. At least she didn't have an appetite. No. I like how the. the it came with it came with a vhs copy of kiss meets the phantom of the park hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) rock out i think she's an army and i remember watching that when it came on tv kiss of the vampire i remember watching that on the television man being so into it um, oh my god! I just recently got a uh, bootleg on DVD of Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. There's a guy on eBay that sells them for fifty bucks a pop. Okay, worth every penny, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I'm kind of wondering because we have the ending of the book, and then we got the ending of here, and of course, you know, Matthew just mentioned that when he when Eli taps the word "kiss" to Oscar. Um, but I find it quite interesting that Oscar taps back small kiss, mm. Mm. which kind of like adds now, now we have the short story that we mentioned earlier. And I'm kind of wondering if that had any implication of why the short story to the, 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 the extra, you know, what happens to Oscar and Eli that we get the short story. I wonder if it has anything to do with the movie more than the book. Right. Hmm. Because as before, this scene's not in there. But I also find it a bit weird that Eli, because Eli, I mean, you know, the problem with Eli is that Eli may be powerful and whatever they are. But unfortunately, Eli's always dependent. He's always, there's a dependency. So before his dependent, his whole creation and the way his way of living is dependent on Hyken. Now, with Oscar, Basically, her her dependency is now on Oscar. If, if something happens to Oscar and she doesn't find someone else to take care of her, Eli doesn't exist anymore. I she's vulnerable, and so so what I've kind of got from this is that now that Eli has to depend on Oscar, and the thing is, she's always been a bit offstandish with Oscar as far as when Oscar tried to get too close, but now that Hake and gone, and now it's just the two of them, she says kiss like kiss, and then he goes. Small kiss, small kiss, mm. is, and it's all, and, it, and it almost gives like it's a bit like you know you signed your letter X X O O and the person just signs their name, you know, and then they write you back and just go you know you're like Keith X X O O right to the person <laughs> and then the person writes back and just goes Pam, that's it, no X's no O's and it kind of has that kind of feel to it. I got you, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And with the book kind of gave me a bit of a smile, this kind of gave this made me kind of slightly hesitate. A little bit, because like, oh, okay, so is Oscar gone off Eli a little bit? He's a dick to her throughout it, you know what I mean? When he makes her come in, mm-hmm. you know. There's... Well, he, I mean, he has a he has the beginnings of a serial killer anyway. I mean, look at his right. scrapbook, right? You know, he's he's stabbing <laughs> trees, 
you know? He said that. She's like, you're just like me. He's like, I'm not like you. And she's like, squeal like a pig. Go on, squeal, squeal. And he's like, like, I saw you. I saw you stabbing the tree. I heard what you said. You're just like me. Yeah. And I think that the movie actually, because the focus is more on Oscar and Eli, the book is, you know, has the focus on them, but there's so much, many parts of the book where the film kind of just centers more on just these two people. And so you, I think you notice Oscar a, a lot more in the movie than you do in the book. I mean, the book, you know, you, you know what he's going through and everything like this, but I found him, you're, you got him like a microphone, you got a microscope over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Life relationship in the movie. And there's kind of a weird dynamic sort of thing. Yeah, but he's like the protagonist really in the movie, and you know, really in a sense. Yeah, absolutely is. You know, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah, I see what you're saying. So I think in a movie, you can always take it, you know, the camera can follow wherever it wants. To, you you can lead the camera wherever you want. In a book, I think you're trying to, like, through symbolism or symbols in itself, um, you're trying to sort of lead somebody down. Oh, this is how, how, how I think about something. This is how I see the world. This is how I want, would like you to sort of think about things, you know. Mm. But in a movie, we all say it together as a collective thing, you know, and then we make our interpretations. Well, I just thought in the book, we kind of have an optimistic ending for Oscar and Eli. Yeah. In the film, the optimism's there, but it's not as what you, it's not what, like, it's not quite, you know, but there, there, it could go either way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sourness to it. Yeah. yeah. Because Oscar, you know, I mean, you know, Eli's there to help Oscar. Yeah. All the way through. Um, she's not dependent on Oscar, but now she is dependent on Oscar. Now is whether Oscar is going to have enough responsibility to be there. Mm. Who knows? Who knows? Obviously, Eli's feeling a lot more for Oscar than Oscar's feeling for Eli at the end of the movie. Codependency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. How um, to survive codependent relationships. <laughs> <laughs> how, how to develop your, uh, what's it called, uh, COVID mechanisms <laughs> through a vampire <laughs> or something. And it's part of the brilliance of the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> is your lover a parasite? Yeah, is your lover a vampire? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love it We've all been in one of those kind of relationships. In our life. <laughs> it makes you think a lot about things like, you know, yeah, it's sort of, you sit on the tube sometimes and um, I remember, sorry, just diverting a little bit, but I sat next to this guy, there was only one seat and he says, uh, he was obviously wanting to talk to someone and me being like uh, Mr. Nutcase, you know, he's talking to me like, he says, I'll just grab prison, mate. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you do? He says, "Yeah, yeah, I'm a murderer." I said, "Yeah, okay, great." I said, "I'm a musician. <laughs> it's not got much in common. I don't think." Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, that was the train driver. That was the train yeah. driver. Yeah, I got off at the next stop, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now we do get the Haken storyline kind of diminished here. Mm. Yeah, we don't get the rape scene with Eli. We don't get Haken's the one that actually. He's the actual one who starts poisoning the community. Or wasn't Eli? But so they have it, you know. Because what we do is we get we do get the Eli does kill Haken, which is what was intended anyway. Um, you know, before you know, in the book they get interrupted. I think if I had read the book first, I would have been really disappointed with the movie. 
Mm. You know, that was a little bit. It's so good, it. so epic. It's probably like the same way we did American Psycho last time. You know, like if you read the book first and you watch that movie, you're like, well, well, that was cute. You know what I mean? It's just... Yeah, the book was amazing. Yeah, just so good. Yeah. Was it a composite? I mean, you know, sorry, going back to American Psycho, was it a composite of different people, case studies that this guy built the character up around, like, you know, or because uh, I, when I was reading, like, I just got that feeling, like, you know, it was like it wasn't one person, it was many people. He'd just taken all the most gruesome parts and sort of like made a Frankenstein monster. Yeah, well, he's, yeah. Yeah. well, he's definitely a Bundy, he's a Republican, wears a suit and tie, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he had the charms and looks of Bundy with. But then there's also the case of whether any of this is really happening or is it right. all him sort of thing. Um, I think um, American Psycho pretty much developed, basically is setting itself up as basically is a person who thinks that there's somebody but no one knows who he is sort of thing. And every and every, people are not known. For, there's no one in that whole book that's known for the personality whatsoever it's all about what they're wearing and that's it that's as far as it's all hey, that's right yeah sorry that's right and the business card to have you know it's almost like the fight club thing you know um you are not your wallet you are not you know whatever like you know yeah it's almost like people define themselves by what they show on the exterior but really you know the the true well the soul of a person if you want to call it that you know it's like the person that's always hidden from view Unless you get and the most- it's also because it does deal with the yuppies of the 80s as well. Oh, yeah. And in American Psycho, you have to remember that, I mean, well, in the 80s, yuppies were yesterday's hippies. All these people that sort of free love and everything like this became very um, egotistical and all about money and became the, the yuppies. Yeah. You know, the yuppies I mean, often were- got a job on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I think that's, was quite funny so that's why when you know like today we get there's a lot of you know there's a lot of idealistic things you know that are being said at the moment um you know whether you agree or disagree or whatever it's irrelevant but i kind of wondering it's like you know because we are kind of having like this new 60s kind of thing with you know you know everyone's equal everyone's this everyone's that and so on and so forth and i'm kind of wondering like in 20 years time are these people going to be like the ultra conservative like you know moneyistic yeah. <laughs> that's what happened in the yeah. 60s and that's also what happened in the 20s as well we had like this huge you know hedonistic you know society in the 20s and then of course they became you know you know you know, oh yeah, road and you know, yeah. communism, and the Red Scare, and all yeah. this stuff came through. And that basically the depression, sort of like, in, you know, this overnight to become like rigid. You know, so, it's a, pride comes before a fall. You know, as in the proverb. You know, it's true. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's great to branch out. It's great to sort of expand yourself. You know, I mean, basically, that's the only reason why we're here in this reality is just to expand the consciousness. You know, and um, all the rest is gravy. You know. Well, I mean, the sixteen-year-old says that human race never <laughs> learns anything anyway, and it repeats itself over and over. Yeah, mm. you know, they go, we go through worries. It'll be like ultra-liberal and ultra-conservative, and ultra-liberal, <laughs> ultra-conservative, and it goes back and forth and everything like that. You know, meanwhile, not really attacking the real issues anyway. The real not issues really, of the day, no and, and there's no way that they're going to equal that up because. If the social, the social economic people doesn't matter what your race, sexuality, or anything like that, they all joined up as one. They become the majority, and if you don't want them the majority because the people at the top would be the minority, and they're not going to have the power they have. But have, and you have a French Revolution going on, and blah, 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 blah. 
So wow. what you do, you, keep, you just keep everything very subdivided, which is what we do, you know. There is no political solution to our troubled evolution. <laughs> my 16-year-old son's always telling me capitalism is a failed system with racism and sexism inherent in its structure. And the only way we can get over this, you know, is, is by is politically. And, and, and I'm like, yeah, you're going to end up some yuppie scumbag. I know it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Egg and dolls. <laughs> yeah, eat that ice cream. <laughs> um, I mean, um, I think my grandmother said it wise that the problem with humans is that they're born with an ego. <laughs> you know, get rid of the ego, you might have you might have a species that actually gets on with each other. But it's well, like it's like the invasion it's of the body snatchers. Was it be- better? Is it better? <laughs> when you watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers, do you ever think to yourself, maybe it is better? Maybe they should go to sleep. Maybe the the body snatchers are the good guys, and and uh-huh. everyone's fighting against them is yes. bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look at look at bees, look at bees and hornets and all that. Stuff. I mean, they live as one hive. You know, right. they, they don't, yeah. you, know, you can you know you never see a nature program where these bees are fighting amongst themselves in the hive. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. Like, you yeah, know, the dirty classism. You got yeah, the workers and the queen. Yeah, uh, maybe it should be like the bold consciousness, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll just all get on, like you know, yeah, you know, yeah. you will be assimilated. I but I come from Newcastle, you'll never learn me language, man. Well, you know, when you I mean, even if you even if you like speak the same language and stuff like this, let's say that's to take English, for instance, you know, <laughs> you're still- you know, you'll still get bullied over what kind of you know accent you may have. Or, yes, sure. You know, I always said that if the whole human race all were blonde hair and blue eyed, everyone would be bullying the person whose eyelash curled just slightly different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, you, know, you got the face of it wrong. Oh, yeah. look at her! Her eyelash. She's got one eyelash that curled to the right. This goes the slightly to the right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a crazy video. <laughs> Um, crazy human beings, and I'm so yeah. happy to be here. Never <laughs> learn, never learn. Going forward. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think another thing. I mean, going back to let the right one in the film, <laughs> they did film Eli's origin story, which they did cut out of the film. Which I kind of wish they kind of kept that in a little bit because it would have made more sense when he goes, "I'm not a girl." Okay. Yes. The yes. film never really, never really. Fans on that sort of thing, you know. You see the cut. You see, there's a part where she's going in the bathroom, and he looks, and you can see her, uh, her, her nothingness, and there's a scar there. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, I mean, the only good thing about the scar is that it's it's a it's a zigzag slant sort of thing. But if it was like straight up and down, then she could have been a girl. You know what I mean? It's kind of a yeah, weird not, thing. Yeah. So basically, so you're only as good as uh, how worldly your audience is. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely some back alley surgery going on there. <laughs> it wasn't a sleepaway camp moment. No, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I remember. Um, I remember going to uh, a charity event about female circumcisions and um, two of my secretaries have had it done. And I got, you know, I saw it firsthand sort of thing, but they had it done in a hospital, but this is about them doing it in a, a, a tribal fashion in, um, in 
Africa where they do it with a broken Coke bottle and a rock. <laughs> God. Oh, man. Wow. Bloody hell, man. Flipping it. And I just thought to myself, it's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of surgery you don't want when you're back home. <laughs> the Splatterpunk guy's taking notes, right, Chad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Writing it in blood. I've gnawed off, the, <laughs> gnawed off the tip of my finger and I'm putting it on the wall. Right. Bloody hell. <laughs> my, um, my family is, I mean, <laughs> my, my mom and my mother's side of the family ran to hospitals and doctors. And so basically, you know, for instance, I fell into the hay, hay, hay grinder when I was um, about 12. And basically, I, you know, the, the metal thing cut into my legs and cut into the bones. So basically I had this. So I kind of wobbled home and stuff like this. And my mom wouldn't take us to the hospital or any kind of doctor. They didn't believe in them because they were paranoid of them because we're I'm from a back, a backward redneck family, for whatever you want to make of that. And so my mom basically had to hold me down. My grandfather's holding me down. My mom's stitching me up and using flour to paste it together. That's how we did dealt with things back then. <laughs> and the notes continue. Chapter two. I remember the first time I went to the hospital. I was done because that didn't hurt at all. So imagine with Eli, I mean, man, that's what's quite sad because the story that we get with Eli is that basically what it's done, it's done in a whole kind of folklore, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ceremony when it's all done. When he becomes a vampire, it's not that he gets bit, it's, it's this whole ceremony that happens. It's like a rite of passage. Right. He was he was chosen as the special one to you know to go forth, and of course the you know body mutilation and you know so on and so forth does happen during this ceremony, which um I think it would have been quite interesting to actually have that. I mean, you know, I would understand that if there was a budgetary reason, but they did film it, but they decided to cut it from the end. Yeah. But then we are dealing with a director who didn't really felt uncomfortable about the vampirism and the horror aspects of the story. So that's the reason why we get this, which in a way this, the film does work better because of that, you know, because I'm sure that if we had um, Dario Agento doing it, <laughs> we had a totally different thing altogether. The budget's sort of like for a yeah, rock and a coke bottle. Great. You know, I think we can up the budget a bit, you know. <laughs> yeah, can you can you imagine if that option was offered to the Twilight people though? They're like, what, what vampire what genital mutilation? Vampire what let's see what's going on in the in the werewolf line. Let's, yeah, let's see what's going yeah. on over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another thing I didn't understand with the genital mutilation and vampirism, which is probably something we can discuss in the book or we can discuss here, is why would they need to make them sexless? Mm. I don't know, man. Going back to what Matthew said, yeah, you know. That means that they make, could could they populate? Could they make someone pregnant or carry a baby if they didn't? I never thought of that. That's That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's got to be a reason. I mean, okay, she was young. I mean, she was just on the cusp of puberty, so they don't really go into how, because they never really talk about how old she was when this happened. But But obviously, it's that does happen because it's part of the ceremony that else so other vampires you know is it because they're afraid they're going to reproduce 
Well, I know, I know they, they say, you know, I'm, I'm 12, but I've been 12 for a long time. Yes. So, hey, I, I, I don't know. That's a, a good literary thing. It's supposed to be yeah. a, like a poetic statement about, you know, like I think he's, he's working on some really, really deep levels. And uh, I've racked my brain thinking about that. Think why? What? And they don't go into it at all. You know what I mean? And, um, I think he's exploring his just sexuality and gender roles. I think it's just purely literary. I don't, that's, that's me. I don't know. That's possible. I mean, another thing, I guess, I mean, I guess if you're a boy and you're sexless and you can pose as a female, that it's probably easier to find your food. Cause more people are probably yeah. more willing to help a poor little girl than they would maybe a poor little boy. Maybe He says that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, there's so many weird vampire. Whenever children go sing, you know, I mean, there tends to be big headlines for the blonde hair, blue eyed girl than there is for, I mean, when a boy goes missing, you don't really hear about it. Or a young boy. You might get a movie of the week later on about, you know, the case, but you never really get like the huge headlines, you know. Right. It's like John Wayne Gacy. Little Heather's gone missing. It's all over. I mean, do vampires have sexual pleasure? Is like a. It depends on your mythos. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Some mythoses, they're like they're fucking horny as hell, and others, you know, like <laughs> I always right wonder right that you're dead. Nice ones are that way. On um, Bram Stoker's, <laughs> the 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 why the, the right the wives, mm-hmm. yeah, the wives are like that. Maybe they? it's all me- maybe it's all mental. It's not like a. You know, saying like, was it there? Uh, was Papa Smurf invented? That? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, because they all the Donnie uh, Dark, Donnie Darko thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, you remember that one? Yeah. Asexual <laughs> creatures. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's right. That's the reference. I mean, there's there's some people who aren't meant to understand it. I mean, I am a white heterosexual middle aged American male. I mean, basically, if my sexuality was a food group, I would be lettuce. All right, there's just. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's nothing exotic about that at all but i, I i'm like matthew i i've been sitting here just racking my brain forever trying to figure it out yeah so interesting yeah tapas i think <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no a mezzanine mezzanine yeah that's a gemini for you <laughs> when i read the book i didn't really think about it but when i watched the movie i actually thought about it like, <laughs> he's like reading the book he's like i would actually think like what well, are they that why are they doing that but you know because it's missing in the movie and i started thinking about it and because you see that it's like oh okay i mean i don't know this came to me why they <laughs> i don't not quite sure um one of the things i found interesting is that um lena lenderson's voice is dubbed here because oh, yes. her voice was too high pitched more of a sex voice for eli yes that's right yeah oh. that's right but they dubbed her yeah, voice because so her voice is a bit too high pitch. Because she was still like a you know young girl prepubescent or whatever, like you know. But oh no, it's a guy when it, the voice drops. <laughs> I can't, I don't think my voice dropped actually. You know, really did it? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> what about after you got kicked? Then you go higher. <laughs> like I just suck some helium. <laughs> um, interesting enough. Um. The the song Coover I Mean Bill was written and performed by a pair Jessel, which you'll probably know him from the guy from Roxette. Oh, okay. Okay, Swedish, yeah, the group. That's right, yes. Yeah. Should have an ABBA song in there, man. 
they did actually have um on um Agnetha Falskog's song um for Fazenad, which was a huge hit for her in 1968 before she became part of ABBA. She was a huge um, independent artist before ABBA. No, rock set was so underrated in the states, though. I mean, I, I've gone back and listened to a lot of their work because uh, I I know the uh, the the uh, I guess the the lady, the other half of the band. I can't remember her name. She recently passed away in the last year or so. Yeah, yeah. I, I've gone back and listened to their catalog, and man, such a great band. Listen to your heart. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think what happened to them is that when they first came out, they had more edgier stuff like the look and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then they got the number one song in Pretty Woman, which was a huge ballad. And then they became like, then, they, then it's almost like everyone expected everything to come out with to be a ballad, but their stuff was a lot more different. Yeah, they got swallowed up by MTV. The, thing, the same thing happened to B 52s. Oh, yeah. brilliant. After Love Shack. Brilliant. I mean, B-52 is this genius one. Absolute genius. So what do you think of... Um, so with ha- the Haken storyline taken out of here, um, and then they... Um, how, I, did you think the, the justification about now turning it into, like, Eli now is the person attacking the townspeople? What do you think of that? Because that's kind of an addition. Because of course that doesn't happen in the book. It's Haken that's the one that turns Virginia into the vampire. And, no, and, no, uh, it's not Haken who turns Virginia into the vampire. It's her. She's she's hanging up in a tree, and Virginia comes walking down. She drops oh, out of the tree. Sorry, we'll her back. I thought it was Haken at first. I'm Haken's thinking. I'm How would he even do it? He's human. No, when Haken becomes a vampire, doesn't he? Because he doesn't buy. In the oh, book. you mean in the book, he eventually becomes a vampire. Yeah, but but he's not a vampire at that point. When Virginia, he's okay. in the hospital still at that point. Uh, oh, sorry, ha- have you done the ratings or not yet? But uh, I, you know, I love the, all that storyline with him, and it's so perverse. It, it really takes the pedophilia out of the film. I mean, it would have been a very dark film if they had had him sitting on the park bench as a drunk before he meets her just grabbing boys and molesting them and ending up in prison. And he was drinking half-made wine out of a garbage bag. And then when that library scene, I, I mean, fuck, dude. If, if they, you know, if Showtime puts that in there, it's good. that's intense, man. Yeah, I, w- I will pay for Showtime if, if this is authentic. Yeah, I hope they do it, dude. It, it's going to be, it's going to be wild, dude. It's going to, it's probably going to cause a stir. It's going to be 10 episodes. It's transgressive as hell. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be 10 episodes, so yeah, I imagine they're going to, you know, they're going to pretty much divulge into everything. It's a story about pedophilia, you know. It's it's a huge theme and a huge issue within the that was completely taken out of the movie. Now, another thing I found quite interesting about this as well is that Eli, which, we, which we'll be covering next month, we're doing an interview with the vampire next month, but we do get the the adult person stuck in a child's body. Yeah, that's right. Kind of an odd thing when you think about it. She says she's not an adult, though. She says my brain is still a twelve year old brain. I still think like a twelve year old. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, she does seem that there seems to be a, a more of a maturity than a twelve year old. You time, have to gain wisdom, right? You have to, even if you have like a twelve year old immature mind. Seeing all that is 
there's wisdom and maturity, I guess. Yeah, there's wisdom and time. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you something? Have you have done the rating of the movie? Not yet. No. 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 Uh, okay, because I have to go. So for the movie, my rating is five out of five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, see you in the next one, Leandro. Yeah. Take it easy. Bye. You too. Later. Bye. 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 Mm. Yeah, so I think if they when they do do uh, the mini series, I said before it's going to be out in twenty twenty two, so it's going to be out this year. Um, yeah. I am, I know, but then another thing is like, are they going to set it in Sweden or are they going to set it in America? I hope they set it in Sweden. Yeah, I want it exactly like the book, but you know, <laughs> yeah. that's just me. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think if they said it in Sweden, I think that you can probably get a lot more away with things if you said it in a foreign country than you can in your own backyard. Because mm-hmm. if you said things in your own backyard, sometimes you have to worry about what people are going to say because it's in their backyard. But if you do it for oh, well, I'll watch this. This is fantastic, but it's yeah. over there. And so it doesn't affect me, but I'm, this is fascinating. Right. You know, then you have a lot of Americans that feel alienated when they have to watch something that didn't happen in their own country. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's where, you know, let me in does suffer a little bit is because it does lack the quietness of the Swedish film. And it also has um, even the color palette and everything like that, yeah. because the color palette that we have in the, this film here is that it keeps everything very cold and stoic. And there's right. It's uh, yeah. Los, Los Alamos, at Los Alamos, New Mexico, which if you've never been to Los Alamos, New Mexico, New Mexico, you think that, you know, it, it doesn't get all snowy and cold there. Yeah. Yeah, it does. In the wintertime, it's it's a uh, it's horrible. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah just yeah, so I mean, even so many beautiful nature shots cold. in that film in the Swedish film. It was. It was like the, the land was become a character. It, it reminded me of Kubrick's The Shining a little bit. Yeah. Right. Or or even uh the oh, thing yeah, yeah. Carpenter's yes. The Thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And even uh, Insomnia as well. Yes. I never really see that one. You never seen Insomnia? You should give Insomnia a call. Other Williams is best. He's a psychotic murder in person. So. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I have to see that. Great director as well. It's um the same guy who did Inception. Oh right. Christopher uh, Nolan. Man of stuff. What the hell's that guy's name? Yeah. Christopher Nolan is that his name? Yep. Nolan? Yep. That's Nolan, it. Yeah. Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Um, I like the uh, this the same guy who made this Swedish film made uh the Snowman. Did you see that one? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. Tons that of night. snow too, just like this. It's very white, cold. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Joan, Joan, I think that Joan Esbo did that, what did the book? Mm. Yeah. There is an opera they're making of Let the Right One in as well, so that'd be quite interesting. Oh, no, <laughs> bloody hell. There's a what? An, an opera. opera. <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> I like there is 50 versions of snow. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, though, could work because I did see the staging of yeah, I didn't see the show itself but right one in but I remember um, I've seen the program when it was here and I know people that went to see it and they said it was fantastic because it basically like, they, it was this basically it was 
a box sort of thing. And basically around the boxes is the trees and stuff like this. And basically, and they just had like this 3D snow going down the whole time and everything. Oh, it sounds like Ikea. You know. (laughs) But they said that the the script was fantastic. Wake up, covered. Covered in polystyrene, yeah, and uh, and manuals to sort of put together a sort of chest of drawers. (laughs) No, no. But what I was saying (laughs) about the opera, I saw the opera of the haunting um, because Lawrence Hyman came um, to do that, and he goes, "Oh, do you want to see this?" And I went with him. Lawrence Hyman's Shirley Jackson's son. We interviewed him and kind of got on kind of a little bit of rapport there. When he came to England to look at the opening of the haunting at the DNO, and I was like, "No." Okay, it was brilliant. I it was brilliant. It wasn't what you would expect. It wasn't like, you know, the music was very haunting. No, it's like Philip Glass writes an opera. It was all kind of like all that kind of stuff going on. So who knows? That's what I'm saying. It's like sometimes I like, you know, American Psycho, the musical. I mean, you know, when you see that, it worked. Okay. It sounds like it'd be really. It sounds like it'd be really horrible, but I mean, you can you can watch scenes of it on there. And I tell you what, the musical was a lot bloodier than it was the film. A <laughs> the lot. Like, nice. I mean, basically, the head. I mean, when he goes down there and he puts, you know, when he puts the, the axe goes through the guy's head on stage. Oh. And it's like you know, and and then what? The screens would just all be blood everywhere around. You know, all around the audience, <laughs> stuff like this. And it's just like, like a, had like oh, it's liquid just oh, like start seeping out of the audience, out into the audience. That was, Sounds like a gore show. That's great. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen Shakespeare plays like that. I saw a, a version of C- oh, Julius Caesar. So weird, but sometimes they work, and you're like, it didn't work, but it does. So maybe it'll work. So I heard Evil Dead's right. great too. I saw. I seen that'd Evil be, Dead. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, that'd be sure. yeah. I saw Evil Dead here, and what's great is that you want the first five rows because when you get the first five rows, they give you an Evil Dead map, that, and you have to put it around like this, around here, and put it over your clothes because all the you, get to, you just walk out of there, and by the end, you're just Ooh. splattered. Come nice. Oh, classic! <laughs> yeah, body parts, oh, like the Rocky Horror Show. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. You walk out of there, and you get, you get, and they take your picture, and you're all like covered in blood, evil dead blood. You're like, hey, that was <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah. I remember we got totally soaked at the uh, the Rocky Horror Show in Hackney Empire, and uh, you know because uh, w- w- when uh, you had to put up the umbrella, yeah, when, yeah. when, when yeah, it was good, great. You know? <laughs> well, when I went saw Carrie the musical. Um, here, um, here at the Dunmar. The thing is, is that when when the bucket of blood falls on her, and it basically just covers her, and basically just hits. If you're in the front row of the audience, it just hit you a little bit. <laughs> but then what happens is that when she's like this, all the seats and everything just move back. You're in the audience, you're like being thrown back like Whoa. this, and then yeah, yeah. all the <laughs> being thrown over the place. All these actors are being thrown around you, and she's like, sort of oh, thing. Wow. You know, so so they can make it work, and, you know, and the music was fantastic. It was, you know, it worked. I have to sit there and say that Carrie the Musical is like one of my all-time favorite musicals now because of seeing that. So <laughs> nice. But then I've seen stuff that's like, what in the hell have they done? You know, <laughs> so, so it'll be interesting to see what they would do with this. So I might go. I'll give it a shot. You know, see, you know. But I said before that you know the stage show of Let the Right One In, from what I heard, was brilliant. It was one, of, you know, some people. I'd go. I doubt they'll come here. They ever saw. So, you know, the sets look good. I've seen the pictures. And I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I didn't see it myself. But from the people I heard who hate horror, I mean, these people who hate horror, they're really in the serious theater, and they were like, 
you know, they became fans of the, the and I think I read yeah. the book afterwards and saw the movie afterwards, all from seeing the stage show. So that's something. Nice. So, who knows? Who are these people who hate horror? Do you have their addresses oh, yeah, available? <laughs> get them. <Yeah. laughs> you know, we're, we're, we, all, we all love to be scared to they death. You know, hate like, horror. I think that they, but I don't think that they hate horror. I think they hate jump scare horror. They okay. Like oh, Gratuitous blood flow. Yeah. We'll, we'll give like, them that much. It's like when you meet somebody who says they hate the Beatles and all they've ever heard is I want to hold your hand. They've never <laughs> right. listened to the White Album. They've never listened to Let It Be, but they're like, oh, I don't like that. You know, like, you, you, don't, right. you never listen to it. <laughs> well, that's why it was red and blue, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your yeah. basis of comparison is The Conjuring. Yeah, we don't care for the Warrens either. We get it, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, talking about The Conjuring, uh, Keith, you know, this apparently, oh, I was going to say, Craig, it's up in um, Enfield. Apparently, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I know well, it's not. I know it was in Massachusetts. Moves, I, mean, I think, I think I'm sure we to, when we get to the Conjuring and Ed and Lorraine Warren, I think you have to say loosely based. Loosely <laughs> based. Okay, got it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But if you have if you have Sky, um, they did a mini series based on that case with okay. um, Nick Frost in it from Shaun of the Dead. Oh, okay. Um, Eileen Atkinson. Um, and some really good actors and people like this, and watch that. That will give you more of a realistic view. And that was actually done with the family that was involved in. Okay. And it's a lot. It's a, I mean, it's horrible stuff happens, but it's quite low key as well. And it, and it, and it does do it with a. They they film it and they tell the story with a skepticism going over at the same time, okay. but reality at the same time. So you're kind of left not knowing yes or no, but want you know they do a really good job at it. But kind right, of Oh, that sounds like the typical British way to do things. Like you know, <laughs> you know, he won the Oscar. He did all the Mike Lee films as well. Um, biggest guy. He was in Life Is Sweet and um, oh yeah, Timothy, yes, yes, yes. Timothy Spratt, Spratt, something yeah. like that. He's in it as well. I think he won a Bafta for it. But get that if you want to know about the Enfield case, watch that. That's better than okay. You know, oh, feel like feel like watching the Amityville horror movie and you know trying to get. I mean, Whatever you know, whatever you feel about that, but you know the book is so much different from the movie. I mean, that's <laughs> you see the, the preview for the new movie. It's in space, Amityville in space. No joke. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in space, no one can hear you scream. That's because there's no atmosphere. When the Amityville horror came out, I was really into the Amityville horror, like because I was in school, and I remember like going and getting like all the. Going to the microfiche and getting all the round of full murder stuff and all, you know, yeah. pulling everything up. And, you know, <laughs> I, I did a poster of the, I, I mean, in art class, I did the house and I did like details, <clears throat> model and everything. Else. I was still in my oh, family's yeah. house. And stuff. I was so into it. And then, you know, saw the movie. And then, and I was like, okay, I was really disappointed. I thought I was, oh, I was really upset by that. And I really wanted to believe. And then, John G. Jones realizes that the Amityville, the horror, starts chasing the Lutzes across the across the country. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> and then, and then, and then you got other stories about, you know, but now, you know, the Lutzes, they sold the Lutz, they sold off the Lutzes furniture and that's haunted now. And you know, it's kind of like, oh man. Yeah, the one I've got the box set. I've got the box set last year, and the yeah. only one I've watched on it is Amityville 1992. Right. About a, a, a possessed clock. 
that takes uh, over the house. <laughs> but I need, I need to get through all the, I'm like, it's great. I need to get these. Was it the digital trouble when Paddy Duke asked me? I remember the second one was kind of good, wasn't it? <laughs> the possession. The, the second one dealt yeah. more with yeah. the oh, murders, didn't it? There was more house. sex in it. There was like, yeah. He starts having sex with his sister and stuff. Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, how, no, how, would, like, it, yeah. how would a haunted clock tell you? Just well, the second one did as well. Then, um, I am a haunted Young clock. Was in it. <laughs> I, mean, I am a haunted clock and I'm going to turn the time back so you're late for work <laughs> those guys are just terrible terrible scammers though I mean, they should make a movie about just them just being absolute lying pieces of shit that would be good have you seen, have you seen the documentary called My Enemies of Horror yeah we I was on the, the podcast where we talked about it remember it was years ago yeah. now yeah uh, but I mean his he's really yeah. messed up with me yeah kid. he's on meth man yeah <laughs> And then he had this brother. His brother did a podcast. Um, I saw that. and He seems to be a bit more with it. He's not really... I kind of wonder what happened to Missy, though. I still want to know what happened to Missy, the daughter. Right. Jody the pig. Yeah. <laughs> but it's quite interesting about George and what he was into and you know all those books and stuff that he had. And sort of if books on black magic make you, uh, your house possessed, I'm, I'm doomed. <laughs> oh no! You know now that now that the Warrens are gone, <laughs> the Warrens are all gone now. So I don't know who Zach Bagans is going to export anymore. You know that guy. This, the, it's it's kind of I'm I'm kind of glad that uh, the whole the whole uh, televised paranormal scene has has come and gone. It's uh, I, I was knee deep in it for a decade of my life, and I'm I'm just I'm just glad it's not really a thing right now. But it's destined to return. It always does, just like bell bottoms. You know it's going to come back. <laughs> yeah, I saw somebody wearing some the other day. Pretty cool. You know? I mean, the thing is, when it comes to Riley Fail and his voices or whatever like this, have you ever seen the crime photos of the Defails? Yeah. No. And you, and you look and, you, and the thing is, have you seen like the have you seen like the wallpaper and the carpet mm-hmm. and the, and the thing is, yeah. if you all the drugs that he was taking, you'd be seeing shit as well. <laughs> 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 hey, Keith, you like, remember you LSD and heroin at the same time? I'm like, well, I've done a lot of drugs <laughs> and party with a lot of people. Looking, that's like a mixture you don't often see. That's a steerable diet in Newcastle, but <laughs> no. But there was a guy called Ouija. He always seemed to appear on the scene and take photographs yeah. of like horrific scenes. He almost like he was there before the incident happened. Almost like, yeah, really, really. Ouija. Yeah, yeah, Columbo, yeah. yeah. He also was involved in the Highgate vampire when that was going on in the 70s, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Being found dead with their Gosh. being dead next inside Highgate Cemetery yeah. for a while. Like, <laughs> Highgate vampire. And they had to exercise him. It was like a great thing. In a magical, yeah, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I just have to remember, like, looking at, like, because I always had this vision of what inside the house looked like. And then when I saw the murder scenes and look at the wallpaper, and everything, I was like, shit, if, he's on, if you're on all those drugs and all that, 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 that wallpaper is going to be moving for you. Because I mean, oh, yeah. I, I used to be asses and just watch Marvel <laughs> tables moving. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 70s Italian restaurant look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, we got no, some some seventies wallpaper. My mum had this amazing stuff. I mean, it was like trippy anyway. Like, you know? It was just like big orange circles with black dots in it. You know, really weird, man. You know, come in from a night out on the beer or playing a gig or something, and be like looking at this wallpaper, and even the dog was barking at it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> get that bloody wallpaper off! <laughs> uh, uh, 
Thank God we're back to modern colors now. Now that you can yeah. do acid, then you're not freaking out too much. Yeah, right? <laughs> totally. You can walk through the wall. Now. Yeah, walk through the walls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just remember doing acid and listening to Kate Bush's Hounds of Love album came out. Oh, my gosh. And so I just remember, like, I was living in this 1920s um, <laughs> hotel in wow. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Just finished school and a bunch of did it. I just remember sitting there in the lobby looking at this Listening to Hounds of Love, you know, where she's like waking the witch and all that sort oh, of gosh. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh. And I'm like, yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's, you know, she was doing yeah, a conjured on that. Yeah, Katie. You know, I wish I'd have saw Kate live. Yeah. It would have been cool. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Did anybody see Kate Bush live? Um, I didn't see her live. I was going to go see her live this time around, but I had. Oh yeah, the yeah. No, I remember. Sort of had had about. I was about ten shillings short of the ticket back in the seventies. You know, I was just going to busk down to London and and just try and go and see her at the Hammersmith, but um, I didn't have the nerve. The time said, I wish I'd have gone now. (laughs) Yeah, could got in. Then she did that one. Then she then she did her second concert, didn't she? About five years ago. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go see that, but. A friend of mine went stage since she was brilliant, but hmm. mine there's some great tribute acts of people that you know. The mm. there's a girl who's on, I think she's on Instagram. She does a Kate Bush tribute, and she's really, really cool. You know, she's really good. I want to see a Bjork tribute. That'd be cool. You know, <laughs> remember Bjork guys? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I dealt, I dealt with um, stalker. I dealt remember? with uh, some of her art not too long ago. I picked up right. an entire truckload. Of some of her artwork in Seattle and shuttled wow. it all the way back to Dallas. Woo. Wow. wow. Did you ever do a deep dive on her stalker? No. Yeah. No. Dude. I, I oh, had dude, I had like a crush on her intense. though. Yeah. Dude, his like in, stalk, her stalker story is fucking you he videotaped the whole thing. You can go watch it like for hours and hours of this wow. guy. It is scary, dude. He's it's totally York. York had a terrifying. Huh? York. Right. Yeah, dude, he yeah. sent her this fucking bomb that was gonna blow up and send acid into her face, and oh, then he shot himself. And but he he had like shaved off his head, shaved off all his eyebrows, paint. He was naked, this big naked guy, bald, no eyebrows, paints his whole body red, and is like talking and filming it all. He made a diary of it. Wow, hey, somebody and, should do a documentary. Luckily, they found they <laughs> smelled his body. Ryan. Went yeah. in there found the videotapes and we're like holy shit a bomb is going to Bjork and we're able to intercept it before she got it it probably would have been her secretary but whoever opened that up was going to get acid in their fucking face oh my god man I was watching this documentary about Agnes and Foltzclog from ABBA the blonde one Um, and she um, she had a stalker and he was like he like writing her letters and she called the police on him and all this other stuff and then he showed up at a party and then she didn't know it was her stalker, but she started dating him. And then she ended up moving him into her house. And then she found <laughs> out like, and then the police go, then police had to go to her and go, this is the guy who's been stalking you. She had no idea who the person was because she had got these letters and these death threats. And he was like, and then when they kicked him out, that basically um, he kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And she had, um, so she became a recluse and she had to move. And, and that's, that's, that's why she disappeared from the, the eye wow. and then something happened and he got he, he died either in some kind of weird accident car accident or something like that and then that's when she resurfaced again but 
Wow. She's mad. She didn't know. All she got was letters. She didn't know what he looked like. The call yeah. is coming from inside the house. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, man. What's, what's wrong with human beings? Bloody hell, no one knows the aliens won't come and say hello. Oh, yeah. Have you been to that you planet Earth? this happening in beehives. You know? No, you don't. No, <laughs> no you don't. <laughs> it's, like that, it's like that scene in uh, National Lampoon's Vacation where the aliens come by. They're just like, well, roll them up. Yeah, roll them up. Let's go. <laughs> there's some nice people on the planet you know they will come someday you know i have a friend who's a madonna stalker and there's like five or six of them <laughs> this about, 20 years, about 15 years ago um and i remember they're going oh madonna's you know madonna's in town she's staying at this hotel and they i go they go do you want to stand outside with us and i said what the hell i got nothing else to do let's see what this is all about so yeah. we do and it's out there for about half an hour an hour she comes out of the car she goes in we go back to his house with these other stalker people Good. and it's kind of weird because they're going did you see that look she gave that look was for me oh did she that look you know and they were like talking like okay. this and then they were and then there was an interview this is back when frozen came out you know in that froze that song frozen sort of thing and that, then the video comes in, they're watching, they're watching this interview and she's going, oh, that word that she says, that's for me. And this is the way they're talking. They're dead serious. Wow. Okay. And then it's like, and then the Frozen video comes on. And then, you know, there's that part where she bows down and the CGI birds come out from her, you know, yeah. whatever. Like, oh my gosh, she's fantastic. How did she do that? Oh, I, she, I can't believe she was able to do that. It's like, <laughs> I'm sitting there, I said to her, I go, this is fucking CGI, folks. I mean, it's not her. <laughs> And they, I mean, they got really angry. They asked me to leave and everything. <laughs> That's when you crawl out the bathroom window. He became a vegetarian. So I used to invite him over and give him mints and tell him that it was corn and he would eat it. And I'm just like, <laughs> which I guess part of my bulliness coming back out again. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but with Dr. Oh, you kind of like, yeah, you, you just you kind of look at them, and I've never. I mean, That's there's true. a lot of people I'm enthralled with as far as their talent is concerned, but I wouldn't. I'm never enthralled enough to actually stalk them or come to the point where I'm like no, screaming no. over anyone. No. And I find that really bizarre. It is bizarre. I mean, it's almost like. Oh God, that's terrible. I mean, wow. You know, you must have something going on in your life, surely. You know, you know, you are the hero of your own life. You know, so you make it the best you can. You know, but. To stalk someone that's oh man a I'm, a Gem- that I'm a gemini so i stalk myself you know i love and stuff like this but i would never i could i would i never go that far to be fanatical about anything yeah yeah well what i say never don't meet your heroes because you will be disappointed you know I well, seem to remember like certain. <laughs> I, I seem to remember certain drunken uh, like conference calls with with certain literary agents where they would be like, "So who wants uh, Keith Richards' agent's phone number?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to call any names though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always got phone numbers. Oh, <laughs> I think I still have Johnny Depp's agent's phone number somewhere. Yeah. I'm gonna have to look for it. <laughs> where do you think some of our where do you think some of our interviews come from? From that list, <laughs> <laughs> the number of somebody. <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. <sighs> I remember someone at work said they want um, they were in love with Brad Pitt. So I go here, here's Brad Pitt's agent's phone number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I can't tell these stories back home because nobody believes me. 
<laughs> don't tell anybody where he got it from. Just do it. Give him a yeah, call. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, yeah on that note. Um, so let's score um, let the right one in on a scale of five and started with you Craig how, how many stars do you give this um, it's definitely five stars because I watched it and I was yeah. I just said that was so good what yeah. I just watched so that's why I'm going to give it five because it was brilliant brilliant cinematography and serenity and really really nice film yeah and what about yourself David how many do you yeah, another five also, and it's funny. It's just it's just captivating, you know. And it's as I said, the guys were saying like it's a, a different slant and an old uh, idea, but you know, yeah, just and plus, you know, it's just a beautiful part of the world, and maybe not so much in the movie, like, but it is a beautiful place to go and visit in Scandinavia. But uh, yeah, I definitely a big, big punch, teeth grinding five. And what about yourself, Chad? How many stars do you give this? Uh, this is definitely a five. This is such a, Yay. it's a beautiful, beautiful film, beautiful film uh, from yeah. the actors, to the characters to the setting. Just man, swallow your pride, screw the American version, read the subtitles and watch this version of the film. Yeah. The Ikea version is the best. <laughs> <laughs> come, come for the vampirism, stay for the meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> What about yourself, yeah. Matthew? How many stars do you give this? Yeah, you know, I hate these star system, but um, I give it five, I guess. You know, I felt like the same way with American Psycho, you know, the, that they they took all the transgressive stuff out. You know, I mean, it could have been so much darker if they had gotten into uh, what's his name, Hor- Horkum, Harkum, Harkum, yeah, yeah Harkum. Um, I mean, they just really left him out. Like he barely even spoke. There was a part where she's yelling at him and he's just sitting there and she's like, don't you have anything to say? And he, all he can say is, forgive me. It's like, his. Oh. and like there was the, when he was sitting in the um, Chinese restaurant and they come over to drink with him in the book, he bought him a, he bought him a whiskey and was cool. And, but in the yeah. movie, he just gets up and walks away, you know? Yeah. So, but um, I still give it five stars. It's great. It's a fabulous film. <laughs> the big five. I think it's a good companion piece of the book. I think the book, I think the book, of course, is better, but I also think that I think they I said before, I think they marry well together. I think they complement each other very well. And, you know, and I said before, I mean, it's a two hour film and it doesn't feel like a two hour film at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beautifully filmed and beautifully done. And I mean, and, you know, and it's still considered, uh, you know, from the 2000s to today, it's, it's still on people's top 10 lists. So it says a lot there.
brings us to the end of the Literary License Podcast. Um, next week, we'll be doing our make remake. We'll be doing The Shining from 1988, which is directed by Stanley Kubrick, and the 1993 miniseries, which was due to the unhappiness of Stephen King, decided to write his own adaption, which will be the miniseries starring Stephen Weber and Rebecca De Mornay in his version of The Shining. And, of course, our back to the 80s, we'll be doing the 80s, um, the 1980s, sorry, the two-for-one, the 80s. Horror will be covering the German film Necromantic, about having sex with corpses and basket case, about what would happen if you sit there and remove your conjoined twin and put them in a basket and went through life. And, of course, we'll be covering our Dark Shadows. And then next week, next month, um, um, book the screen, Kings of Horror episode will be interview with a vampire with Anne Rice and of course the film starring Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. So it's good night for myself. Good night, Craig. Good night, everybody. Good night, David. Good night. And Matthew, do you want to let anyone know where they can find you or anything where anything that they want to buy or anything? Yeah, I've got a. I got a book about growing weed called Kind of Penthe, horror book. Uh, you can find it anywhere you get books. If it's not at your bookstore, just ask them to order it. Um, but it's on Amazon. And I got uh, two collections of short stories out. Um, <clears throat> Under Rotting Sky, won some awards. Been uh, A lot of people like that. And uh, I'm around. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. Just take a look out. Matthew Brockmeyer. And thanks so much for having me, Keith. Oh, no <laughs> And what about you, Chad? Before we say goodbye to you, anything that you would like to share? I say grab a copy of my Splatterpunk Western, Starving Zoe. It's uh, kind of a strange take inspired by the narration of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye when mixed with those other two genres. Uh, you can find me at cderekmiller.com and everywhere on social media at Hal Growl Snarl. Mm. And, of course, if you're looking for more information, you'll find that in the show notes. And, of course, if you sign up for the newsletter, um, they are in our newsletter on a monthly basis as well. So it's good night for myself, and we'll see you next week for make, Remake with The Shining from 1980 by Sonny Kubik and the 1993 miniseries The Shining of the Good night, y'all. Good night. Good night. Good night. Driving through the city as I look